Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. The performance rankings, you had to be there, crappy quiz and a slight tangent. World Cup B is growing on me. (laughs) (laughs) As a name. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Alright, you're very welcome along. It's Monday morning. It is, what are we looking at? It's uh, early April. So the title race is hurtling towards its conclusion in whatever it is that you like, whatever sport. Maybe do we even count the GA? Are we starting to see the evidence of some stuff that we know is going to happen later on in the summer? Yeah, okay. That landed. Hello, everybody. A very good morning to you. Colm is here. Colm, how are you? Sure, good morning. Shane is here. Shane, how are you? Good morning, her lads. If you'd, her like to lads. Get, if you'd like to get in touch with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number, or you can leave a uh, comment in the YouTube stream. YouTube.com forward slash off the ball, or at off the ball AM is our own Twitter account. A more competitive Gillette Labs performance rankings there has never been, perhaps. Oh, big shout. I don't think, Ger, I'm giving too much away if I mention the omissions. Because as, as, soon as, as soon as it's displayed, everyone's going to see. But no Katie McCabe. So Thursday morning on OTB AM, we were lamenting the fact that our captain could be missing for the World Cup. We don't know what the injury was, the extent of it. And there she was, started for Arsenal in the Women's Super League. Got the winner and possibly the goal of the weekend as well. The trajectory, like an airplane taking off into the top corner. Beautiful. That's a very good analogy. It was really beautiful. And uh, not the only one to miss out. Adeleke now, who seems to be like the weekly omission from her unbelievable feats in America also misses out. We could have done any number of angles here, but I'm very excited. I don't know about you, Shane, to showcase what we have here Wasn't for the Jet Labs performance rankings. Can I just say that this was that whole bit at the top there from Colin was, was really his invitation for us to um, to congratulate him on his diagnosis of Katie McCabe's injury because he was like, no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, f- doctor, physio Dr. Colin, mm-hmm. who, I mean, maybe you are frustrated, maybe your real calling was in the medical industry. You could have been a physio, you could have been like a, a, an orthopedic surgeon, mm. an ankle specialist, you know, one of those world. There was a Dr. Richard Stedman. He used to be the only one who could do cruciate ligaments properly. Everybody, whenever they would get their cruciate done, they'd all go to this one doctor. But you could have been the answer, Cork's answer to that. Thank you. He's the definition of something. That means like, a lot. Yeah. Instead, you're stuck here with us that on means Monday a lot morning. Coming, that means a lot coming from you. No, I was just looking. I was, the, the impact, it really did look like a proper impact injury and I was hoping for the best. But I was open to the fact there could have been a metatarsal. It's the time of year for metatarsal injuries. It is. As Do- we know. Dr. Buig actually sounds like, uh, it's the perfect name for a doctor, I have to say. Your, your name certainly... Sounds like a doctor caught up in a controversy. Yeah. yeah Dr. Yeah. Buig. Yeah. Sacked by the medical council, which is very difficult to do. Yeah. You need to be pretty bad for them to be like, okay, you, can't, you can no longer be one of us. Anyway, before we get into trouble, at uh, 7.33, here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock for you this morning. Are we just getting straight into that? Oh, you do the coming up first. Okay, yeah. yeah. Performance rankings. Daniel Harris at five past eight to talk about Manchester United who may be featuring in the red. Spoiler alert. Alison Miller talking about the Irish rugby team. How are they not in the red? Are they in the red? They are in the red. There you go. Oh. We're going to find out. They're not. No. Well, that was another omission. Uh, sports news at 8.45 with Kyle Milani. Mars Brosnan is going to talk about the league finals. Keen Trace is going to talk about uh, all of the European Champions Cup at the weekend. And we're bringing some clips from the Sunday paper review as well. But at 7.33, it's time for the Gillette Labs performance rankings. 
You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on their second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance was just lacked that intensity. OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave of your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Shane. Yes. Good morning, lads. Let's start. Starting in the red. Oh, yeah. 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 Old school. Real old school. Two teams that uh, usually aren't paired up together. But Liverpool and Manchester United will be holding hands in the red this morning. I think it's fair. Both had a fairly, fairly bad weekend. The, the, the early kickoff on Saturday seems like a million years ago. Or, or we can start with the breaking news overnight. Go on. I'm just going by the... I'm just yeah, going I by know, the, I know. I'm just going by the screen here, guys. FU yeah. San Diego? Uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I, I'm... I'm do you not like my evolution? That was very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't good. say the... Okay, we want to start with the actual breaking news. Yeah. The, the big news. That, that's fair. Sorry, uh, clearly in the pre, uh, pre-show production meeting, Shane was, uh, was asleep. Brendan Rodgers and, Gra- and uh, Graham Potter both sacked. Everybody's like, well, hang on a second. They meet before they do this crap? Yeah. That does not happen. They plan this? There's clearly no planning going into this. Yeah. The, we, we, uh, folks, we do plan this uh, to a reasonable degree. But um, I think it's fair to say, would you, would you call it a bad day for them yesterday, a bad weekend? They're getting a lot of money for their troubles. Well, that, that is interesting. Well, on, yeah. I, I think that this is good for Brendan Rodgers. I think that Brendan Rodgers is now available in the market when there's two really big jobs for which he is a, a genuine candidate. And I think he'll actually be excellent for those candidates. Eddie Howe took a team down, right? And is now doing such a good job at Newcastle that he's considered one of the best young managers in the game in England, right? Mm-hmm. I think people will completely revisit what they think of Brennan Rodgers after he gets the Spurs or Chelsea job or a job of similar standards. I think he's going to take a team and do really well and I think that um, I think this is good news for Brendan Rodgers. Mm. I was considering suggesting putting him in the amber last night if there wasn't other contenders. You Just know, because, uh, yeah, I'm not sure it is a red for, and even for Leicester City I think the whole relationship had run its course it's four years which is a long time in the top level these days but if you look at it statistically since the World Cup there's Leicester have played 13 games they've got just 8 points that's the lowest in the league in total and it seems like he just couldn't squeeze the sponge of getting any more out of this group of players anymore and they I think tired of him a bit but you look at Rodgers like, and he gets a lot of flack a lot of criticism for the perception of how he is right? but he is an exceptional manager yeah. every single club he's been at he's done well Mm-hmm. in some form in some capacity and you nearly forget because Leicester have been poor for a little over a year now but he got them their first FA Cup in 2021 beating Manchester City no less in the final yeah. and got them their second and third highest league positions ever you know to come fifth two seasons in a row now the other side of that if you're criticising Rodgers or if you're on that side of things you would lament the fact that he failed to qualify for the Champions League two seasons in a row and it was the last game I think at home to Manchester United in the first of those two seasons where they had it in their grasp all they had to do was get a positive result that day and they didn't United won the game and they came fifth but I think he did a brilliant job and if he had left last summer he'd be a lot more celebrated yeah, I don't think it's a reflection of Brendan Rodgers. Like, even reading the uh, the phraseology of the, the statement from Leicester City, compelled to take alternative action to stay in the Premier League. I mean, sometimes it doesn't mean it's about he's a bad manager. It just means at this stage of the season, they might need a change to kind of kickstart the players, to give them a bit more motivation. There's not long left in the season, and, and staying in the Premier League is clearly paramount to, to Leicester City and their, their ambitions. You can't win the Premier League in 20, what, 16, 17, and, and then get relegated a few years later, so... I mean, I feel sorry for Brendan Rodgers, but I think the man would really feel sorry for this morning is Graham Potter, because that one, Chelsea are a basket case, and, uh, and, and we saw it at the weekend. The headline on the front of the star this morning is Bodge and Rodge. I'm like, Rodgers, Rodge. Yeah. Bodge? Brendan? 
Is he both Bodge and Raj in this? It has to be, doesn't he? But there's a picture of Potter beside him. Graham Potter. Is it Graham Potter Bodge? I, I, I don't I don't. I, I love the use of the Bodge Potter and Raj. It's a very niche, you know. Yeah, yeah. Late 90s, early noughties, mid mid. Mid noughties. It's like a, it's a big nickname around the place, isn't it? You know, loads of Podges. Is that, is that a Cork thing? I'd say so. Is yeah. There Pod- oh yeah, there's loads of Podges in Cork. I'm trying to think. Is there, is there a surname equation to it? Uh, it's a stretch. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Uh, Potter's the one who you have sympathy well, for. Well, I mean, Pot- Potter, Potter, uh, Potter's season has been so pathetic that you wonder where does he go? Like seven months in charge. But Chelsea, I think Chelsea is the pathetic thing in this, essentially. But but Graham Potter is the. Remember when he left. Brighton, you're thinking this lad is unbelievable. Everything he touches turns to gold. He's Midas, this man. Um, but I, I think we, we maybe talked about it in the show when he moved to Chelsea. We're like, this can maybe only go south. <laughs> like, oh yeah. I mean, what what was the what was the end game? What was the positive end result of Potter at Chelsea? There, there was just no way I could see Potter being Chelsea manager next season, and that was a few months ago. Mm. And, and you, I know you like you're, and a lot of people are saying like he's Todd Bowley's guy. Like Todd's put loads of emphasis on Potter, gave him a five year contract said he was going to be patient, very different to the Roman Abramovich era, but here we are, Chelsea looking for their third manager in the same season. 12 points off the top four, like, it probably had to happen. But the top four was, it was gone. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I Look, they've obviously done it. They, it turns out old Chelsea, new Chelsea. And there's, all, there's a lot of talk of them having to sell a lot of players in the summer to finance all the deals they've already made. I guess when, when Mudrik is missing the chances that he missed... At the weekend, there's no significant sign of an improvement from many of the players that they've signed. And you look at other clubs, you look at Unai Emery, the table since Unai Emery arrived, we were talking about this on the football kickoff um, on Friday. Uh, he's, he's a top four in terms of points won since he arrived, which is really phenomenal considering the uh, state of Villa when he, he took over. But, you know, you compare and contrast and there's been no immediate sign that he knows what he's doing. There's been no immediate sign that he's getting more out of the players than the players are capable of. And, uh, you know, I think with the the comparison is obviously with Arteta, who Arsenal had never had any intention of sacking, but who there was a lot of noise around when they were not performing at the level they were capable of. And they got rewarded with that. But there's definitely seems to have been a long-term view there. And maybe, I don't know, Arteta's, like his CV was not as complete, really, as Potter's. But I hadn't started so hadn't started at all. He was given a shot. Yeah, you know Pep Guardiola's first team coach. You don't, you'd actually forget about Graham Potter's start as Chelsea manager. He was unbeaten in his first nine games. Yeah, that you know, like a million years he won seven of the nine games. And what was the first loss? Four one away to Brighton. All the players, and from then it was never really convincing. I think the one thing that kept him going was beating Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League last yeah. sixteen. And getting them to the quarterfinal against Real Madrid was was a good sign. But again, like Shane, you and I have talked about Potter a fair bit actually over the last six months. And do you remember the first half of last season when the Brighton fans were booing Potter at full time whistle because of a lack of goals? Yeah. And, and Roberto De Zerbi showing that this Brighton team is well capable of scoring goals. So I found that he was in this purple patch, Potter, for the first six weeks of this season when Brighton went to Old Trafford, beat an out of sorts Manchester United 2 0 or 2 1, and had a load of other good results and then he gets his Chelsea job it just comes around the right time and it was way too soon for him yeah. he's probably another two clubs away from Chelsea yet but he could eventually be there because there's a lot of, po- like, there's a lot of positive aspects of Graham Potter the manager we've been talking about Potter for a long time now yeah 
there's an 18 year old from Bettystown that I would uh, give credit for for the for the Brighton goals, of course. But the the Chelsea statement yesterday. Well, he can't uh, he can't set up tactically. <laughs> yeah, true. But uh, Bruno Salter, yeah. who's worked with Potter Brighton, he's taken charge. The the, the the statement was very interesting. Chelsea said Potter quote has agreed to collaborate with the club to facilitate a smooth transition. In other words, help us find someone else. So this is like words, we're still paying him. Your ex, your ex goes. Uh, will, you, will you help me? I, I'm going to break up. Will you, will you actually help me find someone else? You know, you were great and all, but give me a, give me a hand, will you? Just it's, like it's a, you know, those relationships are less transactional. I hope. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But it was it's it, the 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 um the way in which Chelsea phrased it was bizarre. It's like we're going to get rid of him, but he's going to really really help us find someone else. It just seemed a bit strange, but I mean, Potter seems like a nice guy, and maybe that was his downfall in the end. Too nice a guy. Uh, Dara Heffernan, good shout. Another omission from the Gillette Labs performance rankings. No mention of Daniel Medvedev dominating Yannick Sinner in Miami. Good point. Sean Murphy in the snooker last night, of course. The um, the London Independent have Nagelsmann, yeah. Pochettino. Pochettino's not in the running for the Spurs job, according to the yeah. Sunday papers. Zidane. Now Zidane, I would like to see that. Not that a word would, of English, though. I mean, that would be. He said, he said that he, he would like to have English, but like he wouldn't be the first manager of a Premier League club who whose English wasn't great. But he just get a just get an interpreter. Pochettino yeah. couldn't speak English for months. True. Uh, Luis Enrique yeah. or Mourinho? Nah, 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 nah. nah. Her we, time. We do not need to see Mourinho. <laughs> Enough's enough. Lads. They're flying. He's flying about Roma as well. They won again last night, three 0 Did uh, you want to move on? No, I, I do. You want to stick on it? I'm just thinking. Well, like there's, you know, you know, have open jobs at a number of clubs. Yeah, three massive Premier League clubs with gaping holes in their team. If you're Shane, if you're Tottenham, would you pursue Brendan Rodgers? Oh, for sure, 100. percent Brendan Rodgers just became available, and you'll absolutely take him. I don't, I don't think Leicester's current position is a reflection on him. Like he, as Chair said, he's a brilliant manager. I think you take him in, like, you have to kind of look around and I think he's a better option than Nagelsmann. Nagelsmann's, Nagelsmann's an unknown entity. I don't know if you get on with the players at turn towards the tail end as well. Uh, he might rub people up the wrong way. I don't think Rodgers rubs people up the wrong way. I think players actually I... for him. Well, he can, but he like, does, I mean... That seems to be... He's a, char- he, he, he's a character. <laughs> well, uh, you know, that is four years in at a club where they did not expect to be competing for the Champions League yeah. week in, week out. Whereas if he goes to Chelsea or if he goes to uh if he goes to Chelsea or Spurs, he might actually find more kindred spirits. His ambition is the thing that um gets spoken about. Miguel's talking about it in, in his piece today. And like if you go to one of the super clubs, the players are equally ambitious. Mm. You'll find you you might find that um you can do more with those and you can appeal more to their sense of ego and that might be the perfect scenario for him. If you're Crystal Palace, do you pursue Graham Potter? No, I don't think so. Like Potter one's awkward. What happens to Potter? What's his level now? Like, if I'm Potter, I'm going and I'm traveling the world. I'm continuing to get paid by Chelsea. I hope his contract was written in such a way that there's either offset language, which is what they do in America a lot, um, where you get paid until you find a new job. Mm. And then if your new job pays you less than the current contract you're on, that offsets. And you've got to obviously show them what, what it is. I hope. That's it. And I yeah. hope we continue to get paid for the next five years as at the 6, 8, 10, 12, 14 million a year or whatever it is. Well, like, if that wasn't agreed beforehand, he's in a difficult position because it's six months into a five-year contract. <laughs> that's true. Not getting much maybe out of it Maybe he goes into media. Maybe he does a bit of media work. Well, what's the point of having a contract if there's not some clause in it that says, if you sack me, you're going to pay me? You'd hope so, but maybe he was so excited about the prospect of managing Chelsea. Well, that's why you have lawyers. Mm. Lawyers don't get excited. They're <laughs> like... 
not doing their job. I would, I think Graham Potter would be a fantastic international manager. And at some way down the line, Republic of Ireland, Graham Potter would be a great match. Oh, that's an interesting shot. I do think that if, if that's what is his interest, there's talk that Lee Carsey is going to finish up after the Euros. And so England obviously would be the ones who would be making contact with Graham Potter. But I like... Sweden, he's managing Sweden. That's where he's going to end up. Where's your evidence for that? He'd make good international manager. Where's your evidence for that? Well, that's just my opinion. Where's your evidence? Where's your evidence, Colm? Oh, you answered the my part of it there. You did my part. Well, that was great. But what, I just have. I just think he'll be he'll be good with more time in his hands. No transfer window at the bottom. I don't think the transfer window helped him to be honest. A lot, a lot, a lot of time in your hands. To, a lot of time to, in your hands to to uh, to sit on your hands and have boring teams that can't score goals. No, I think he would just develop the squad. I think he's very good with like limitations and probably players at a certain level too that he can get the most out of. I I just never think Chelsea suited him. World class players like the status, you know. All of those English world-class players, would they be looking at him going, yeah, you, you did, oh, wait a second now. Oh, it's not. As soon as you got the opportunity, you bombed out. Yeah, you were exactly what we need around the place in a World Cup quarter-final, semi-final, final. I'm talking about the Irish side. But no, he's, he's not going to manage Ireland. Why do we want him? Let's, let's try and develop some Irish coaches. Oh, we, absolutely. We, have, we, have a, it's we an must have a system thing. in place. It's an all option. Right. That's okay. all. Now, Stephen Bradley's next up, lads. We all know that. Come on. There's a queue here. Get, one, get in the queue. Sure. We'll move on. Uh, also in the red, as I started at the top of the show uh, incorrectly, was Liverpool. Um, objects thrown at the Liverpool bus. Sorry, Liverpool and what, Shane? Liverpool and Manchester United. Yes. Okay. Holding hands. Locked together. Locked together yeah. Uh, yeah. indefinitely. Um, but uh, Man City strongly condemning the, uh, the objects being thrown at the Liverpool bus after the game. Um, inappropriate chance as well by, uh, by fans during the game. Uh, taunting Liverpool fans uh, throughout... I mean, when Salah scores the goal, you're thinking this is going to be a decent game, albeit it was against the run of play. Um, but I mean, I think it was Jack Grealish that, that deserves the headlines here. Um, John Stones was brilliant as well, but but Grealish, uh, the, the the old cliched coming of age performance seems to be wheeled out every so often when Grealish has a decent performance because he's 100 million pounds. These are the games no. that he should be playing well in. But um, well, Grealish has been brilliant. That's money has, yeah. ages. Eight, eight assists since the World Cup, Shane. He's been brilliant. Yeah. The, the That's world. a real backhanded compliment. Who do you support, Shane? Oh, wait, it's Man United. Fairly obvious. I mean, come on, Grealish has been sensational. Yeah, yeah, he's starting to be sensational. Since the World Cup, he is, uh, in the context, uh, up there with Bakaya Saka as, like, most effective. Saka's a bit ahead of him, I would argue. Um, Definitely, And yeah. then it's Grealish, and, like, he's he's never not in the team at the moment. That's the problem, though, Pep Guardiola, isn't it? You just don't know. You don't know what he's going to do with the team. No, I do know. He's, he's picking Grealish well, he has every to get Grealish, yeah. He has yeah. to. I think he finally trusts him as well. Yeah. He's a very specific uh, skill set, Grealish. He does almost almost all the time does the same thing with the ball. Gets a very, very wide left, like he's hugging the touchline. Everybody everybody knows he's coming back in on the right, but he has this ability to glide past challenges or else win free kicks. Basically, his stick is he wins loads of free kicks and defenders don't really know how to deal with him because he drifts in between the lines. But like you'd still want way more from him. Like you'd want more goals and assists, and he can do that. Like the goal he scored kind of tapped, tapped off a great performance. He had this great little flick ball inside to uh, Ilkay Gundogan from the left. I don't know if you saw that when he cut in his right and this chipped it over. Mm. I think two Liverpool players into the box for Gundogan to basically create another. I think nearly another goal chance as well. So he has that in him. He when, should do more. When it was one nil, he tracked back. Oh and, yeah. and was like absolutely sensational and stopped a goal. Got out the Salah. 
and move. they go down the pitch and, and score in the next movement basically and he's involved in that as well it was like a 90 second window crosses for yeah. Alvarez yeah. and it was an absolutely sensational injection of pace from him to get back and commitment and all the stuff that like everybody was is this you know how can he do the hippie crack and the uh, late night parties and then still be a great footballer so well it turns out he's got quite the engine on him and so uh, it's been a sensational recovery from the position where he was like oh he's a flop which uh, all the Man United no no the media it's, it's the like, sign oh. of a it's a sign of a player with a lot of confidence because he believed that he was going to track Salah down he believed he was going to catch him and I think if he wasn't playing that well or if he didn't feel like he had the belief of his manager in him maybe he doesn't make that because he feels if he's playing well now I can do everything like he was doing at Aston Villa If you're in Liverpool I don't know where you are it's, it's obviously Liverpool we're discussing in the red but I mean it, it, it's and this is a, a Man City without Erling Haaland you have to remember as well so that puts the whole game into context How did this Liverpool team beat that Man United team 7-0? That's How right. did Man United lose 7-0 to this Liverpool team? Remarkable isn't it? What the hell? So Jonathan Wilson pointed out that uh, Liverpool have scored a third of their goals in two games this season the 9-0 against Bournemouth 7-0 against Manchester United for an out of sorts season they've had those two games they look completely fatigued Jurgen Klopp looks fed up with everything they're um, they're a shadow of them for themselves aren't they? They're frustrating to watch Liverpool I think Liverpool fans at the moment are just like this is this is difficult uh, because they threaten to be good every every so often like Nunez and Gakpo are I think we all agree good signings now like they've shown enough glimpses this season albeit it's a bad enough season for them so far but Liverpool still can get top four and I mean you look at the team it's like a race to the bottom in the top four at the, at the moment Newcastle probably the, the best of them Yeah um, now, They were unlucky not to have Darwin Nunes from the start he missed he didn't play for mm. Uruguay in the international break because of a deep cut I think he received so he only came on so you're missing him yeah. but I don't think their attack has been too problematic this season it's, it's the midfield isn't it and their yeah. full backs look shattered like Andy Robertson came off looked wrecked when's the last time Robertson got a sustained break who's the backup for Alexander-Arnold at right back their defensive partnerships have never been solidified this season Virgil van Dijk doesn't look the player he once was uh, but still up front I think they're brilliant up front like that front three of Gakpo Nunes and Salah has the potential to be the front three for the next couple of seasons can I ask but you, midfield is the problem can I ask you without, without, like, without looking anything up mm. here um, uh, see their front three has been excellent uh, front three has potential to be excellent maybe not has been excellent uh, how many how many goals do you think they've scored in their 27 games? Would you say it is more or less than, say, uh, Brighton? I'd say you're asking it in a leading manner, so I'd say it's less. And would you say it's more or less than Brentford? Again, I'd say it's less. <laughs> well, they're all very similar. Brighton have scored 49, Liverpool have scored 48, Brentford have scored 46. So, for all of the investments... And I know, obviously, chances are created by the midfield and the wingers. And I understand that they're all having shit seasons, so it's okay. But anyway, I understand that like it's a knock-on impact. But they, they're goal-scoring. So Arsenal have 70, Manchester City have 71. What about uh, Spurs? Has Spurs had a good season or a bad season? Middling season. Not, not a Spurs season. And would you say Spurs have more or less goals than Liverpool this season in the league? Without looking it up, because these are the type of things that you kind of fall into a pattern. It's like you're doing like, homework with your dad. <laughs> um, less, less, less than Spurs. Yeah. By by much? By a margin, I'd say ten goals. No, three, three goals. All right. They've had basically the same season, mm-hmm. um, and their their defense is actually like slightly better than Brentford's. The same as Brighton, way better than uh, Spurs. Yeah, I mean. Does this all go down to the problematic uh, nature of giving your star player an extended contract 
and hoping that you're going to get even more out of him. I.e., was the time to sell Mo Salah last summer? Like, cause Salah, I, like Salah's still been brilliant this season. He still scored a shed load of goals, but he just doesn't. He, he, as I said earlier, he looks a bit lonely without Sadio Mane up front, and he hasn't really connected with the other two. The creative tension. Yeah, the creative tension. Exactly. Sure they be screwed they're all, they're all a bit too nice to each other. Huh? They'd be screwed this season without him. At Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, but. I wonder at the same Somebody time Somebody else would have scored those goals you know? Yeah like, what's the future of Liverpool's attack I think those front three at the moment they're fine but they, they probably just need to connect more and play consistently together Alright let's talk about Man United though because you, you've been avoiding this <laughs> you've been like we can talk more about Liverpool and we'll get some of your comments we are going to talk about Manchester United in a bit more detail with Daniel Harris in a few minutes so we're not going to ruin everything here but oh my god what the hell's going on Luke Shaw's going to be a great pundit when <laughs> he this, finishes He's an honest boy He is honest Yeah very honest so the quote I have in front of me I think they won it on passion, desire, hunger and attitude, four fairly important things. They, they clearly had higher motivation than we had, and that can't be possible, it's not acceptable. Higher motivation, why? Like, you're both going for top four. Understandably, United are still in the FA Cup and the Europa League and whatever else, they're challenging them on a couple of fronts, but what does that mean, that Newcastle had higher motivation than we had? Like, they're at home, is, is that what you mean? To James's Park? And again, I appreciate Luke Shaw's honesty, I think a lot of United fans would appreciate Luke Shaw's honesty as well I prefer, would you not prefer a better performance well of course I'm sorry but no, like what that's that. go on I, I, but you're well, uh, he's you're right. all making oh, isn't it great that we have this really honest guy who's playing for us play some better football would you prefer he came out with a, with a statement we'll try I prefer better. play some better football yeah of course he's got a new contract of course the, the gaping Casemiro shaped hole in that midfield as well Bruno oh, we're, we're now utterly reliant on one man is that what's, what's, what's going on no but he's a fairly significant fulcrum you're right, Shane. Uh, Casemiro's missed uh, eight of the last ten Manchester United games. And as Jonathan Wilson reported this morning, United are two and a half times more likely to win the game when Casemiro plays. And having said that, the Brazilian crucial man missed, or he was in midfield mm. in the 7 0 against Liverpool. Yeah, that's the thing. Do you know, um, I go back to Keane talking about the, was it the circus or was it the opera? I can't even remember what it was. Was it soap opera? What was he talking about in the aftermath of the cup? Is it just something bubbling up that he was unhappy about? Mm, I can't remember that the after the seven nil. Yeah, I think so. It must is there, have been. Is there a bang of Wanda Ramos and the oh we won the Carling Cup? We're like we're off for the rest of the season. We've already qualified for Europe now. Deal's done. Should we can't finish? We can't qualify for the Champions League. Is that what's happening here? No, they, they, well they have to qualify for the Champions League. They have to. Um, to attract players but and then financially as well when you have new owners coming in it's so crucial United to get that top four place I think this season more than any other recently um, I mean Den Haag was, was volatile yesterday he had to be separated from, from Howe in the touchline in the second half I think it was by, by Steve McLaren Do you, uh, is, there like an, is there a benefit to that? Is that like a good sign? Well I think when you're losing and you're, you're performing as crap as United did yesterday Was that performative? No I don't think so I don't think, I don't think Eric Den Haag is a performative person it's not in the. It's not in his. It's not in his demeanor usually. Um, I, I just think the performance for, for overall was brutal. I mean, they tried some different things. Lindelof being one of them. I just. I just don't yeah. know. Like where do you stick? It, it feels so far away from the Carabao Cup final performance against Newcastle. Mm. I think you're right, sir. I think the legacy problems of the last decade are still there, very, very present in this squad. And I think that if the capitulation aspect is, it's always there in the background and I think Eric Ten Hag is, is probably shocked to see that it's still so prevalent like if you look at a, look at the last three games no goals in the league because you'd forget since the 7-0 against Liverpool they've had three other games the two legs against Betis where they won handily and then Fulham in the FA Cup but the game in between was 0-0 home to Southampton in the league you know so they're, like they're, they're kind of faltering 
at the point where people are saying, geez, they could mount a title challenge here. And it was a month ago, like the Sunday Times of this big piece in Casemiro and how he's changed the mentality at the club. And I think that triangle of he, Varane and Martinez is going to usher in the new era at United. Mm. But, but the legacy of the last few years is still very prevalent and it's probably shocked a lot of people that it is so. The thing I would say about United is that they, that was the toughest fixture they have left in the Premier League, I would say, this season. Newcastle away. Like they, they've, they've a couple of home games this week. They've Brentford at home on Wednesday night and then Everton at home this Saturday in the early kickoff. Like They have a reasonable fixture list. Who has Ten Hag made up his mind about this summer? Who's he getting rid of? Anthony. Oh, no. I mean, Anthony's his boy. his boy I know Anthony's his boy the, the one we, player who had a shot on target for United yesterday Anthony 56 minutes trickled into the goalkeeper's hands and do you all agree that he like what's going on with that because that was a, that, you know you were giving out about Jack Grealish and all the money a few minutes ago Shane I haven't oh, heard yeah. you once mentioned the fee for Anthony this morning Anthony. what about what about Shane what about really Anthony has been um Look, then he comes up with those moments like Barcelona, like he scores the winner against, Bar- against Barcelona at Old Trafford. Like he just bangs in a worldly every, every so often. Yeah, that's and exactly that- what you want. A few, four or five moments a year and nothing else. That's exactly what you paid. No, no, I backed Shane up there. How much was he? I backed Shane up there. Yeah, well, look, that, I, this transfer fees every time. Yeah. Every, oh, Greedish is 100 million. Harry Maguire, don't, like, don't mind yeah. the transfer fees. They're all outrageous. <laughs> it was 95 million that. euro for Don't Anthony. mind that. 82 million. That's not happy, right? Club, club can afford it, it's fine. The, I don't. I think Anthony's the isn't isn't a problem. No. Versus other issues in the team. Well, it it's a little bit of a problem in that it suggests that they're going to be hit and miss with their transfer dealings, and they can't afford any misses. And I think I think I think yesterday presumably Varane was injured, right? That's why they took him off. Yeah, it, it and, and they took him on. They took Lissandro Martinez off at the same time, did they? Yeah, I mean. The only acceptable performance yesterday, and I understand those decisions from from tonight. The only acceptable performance was David Hea, and that's not a good sign that your, your goalkeeper is the main man. But <laughs> um, well, that double save, the second one just hit him. Yeah, he was on the ground True. already, but he had, he had to be there, I suppose. He had to be All there. Right. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, we'll keep going into the amber. The Irish in Europe, the Champions Cup. Um, I mean, Len- uh, Leinster are in green, and everybody else is in red. That's well, how this works. Pretty much. But, I'm, but I'm, we're just mixing the colours here because we don't really, for the sake of brevity. <laughs> Red and green uh, make amber. Is that like is that correct? I don't know. A fifty burger in the European Cup. That's what Munster gave up. Yeah, Quinny's in France. Mm. I don't know if you saw Ashley Riley's um, footage of Over on the ferry, him, yeah. him and Raj That'll meeting on the pitch uh, on her social. Anyway, uh, we will come back to this a little bit later on. Munster were shocking. Mm. Like not a great performance. Talk about legacy issues and chickens coming home to roost. Yeah. That was shocking from uh, from Munster, but also. Not shocking in any way, because we've seen this. We've seen this frail defence. Oh, where, where's, where's your argument now, Colm, about uh, all the lack of monster players playing for Ireland? Well, it's still there. Sh- I, share, share, I, me, share me your buddy's anger. Share me the righteous anger that your buddies have in the pub in Cork <laughs> about the Ireland team I, I will, winning the Grand I'll, Slam I'll not having enough monster players. Offer, but uh, I would say it would have been nice. I still can't uh, argue for it, and this definitely doesn't help matters. Well, look, one, one um, issue on the side... It's 29 degrees, 83% humidity. Munster looked absolutely knackered. Did you see them coming out in the second half? I mean, Peter Romani looked exhausted and he was yeah. leading the line. They still notched up 35 points, but the, the ship 50 and 50 has been generous in the end. Keen Trace is going to go big on this later on. Mm. Okay, so we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Yeah, but uh, right, not good. And like, uh, also got a bit of a free pass. They're like, oh, we didn't expect them and they did a little bit better than expected. But like... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, Keane wants to talk about Ulster too, and they're. I think you need a free pass when you're playing Leinster. 
You've got to stop giving yourselves free passes, know, otherwise like, you end up always having mediocrity as your bar. They're a machine, though. This Leinster team are a machine. Leinster weren't playing well at all. No, I know, that's the problem. Do you I keep mean, players missing as well? It was a little yeah. window of opportunity for Ulster. Somewhat. I thought, in fairness, Stockdale, like, uh, there is depth there now. He's getting back to some level of form close to what we thought Jacob Stockdale was capable of, whereas if Mac Hansen was going to be injured or out mm. later on in the year, you'd be very concerned. Now, all of a sudden, I think there is genuine strength and depth there. But um, He looked like a player with a point to prove, Stockdale. Big yeah, time. and he's still, he's still, I think he's 27, so you know, still plenty of time for him to reassert himself as somebody that has the support of the Irish selectors. Anyway, yeah. so that, that's in the amber. We're going to move on to green. Yeah, we'll come back to the rugby later on, as you said, with Gian Tracy. Uh, the league winners, the uh, Allianz National Football League's coming to their conclusion over the weekend. Sligo, Calvin, Dublin, Mayo, the league champions for 2023. Uh, I was in Croke Park yesterday. Good atmosphere, good vibe. Um, the two games probably disappointed somewhat. I was heading to Croke Park thinking this is going to be this is going to be a really exciting day of football. Two really tight games, really interesting games. And in the first half of Dublin Derry, you're thinking, "Yep, yeah, this is this is going to script." But um, then Dublin, of course, started raising the green flags for fun in the second half. And Cluxon, uh, of course, sat on the bench and didn't didn't uh, enter the fray at any stage. And then Mayo, um, poor Joyce, kind of almost it wasn't an excuse after the game, but he was kind of saying they're probably further along in their prep, given that they play Championship next week, which I thought was an interesting. Uh, way of looking at the whole thing. Uh, Killian McDade was a bit of an absence in that Galway team, I'd have to say. Um, and when, when Mayo started so brightly and Galway pegged them back, you're thinking this is kind of the way you expect the game to go. Um, you expected a response from Mayo maybe after the, the Monaghan game the previous week, albeit a raft of changes. Um, Colin Marit, the goalkeeper, was brilliant. Like yeah. Some save at the end, wasn't it? Oh, I know it was above his head, but the reflexes. From the boot and from shot stopping, he was excellent. Um and I think there has been a lot of debate in Mayo as to who the keeper should be. Uh, they each have their pros and cons, but Reap has, has now shown that he has to start against Roscommon next week. And there can be no argument. He probably should have had a black card, possibly, for the Johnny Heaney tackle. Um, only got a yellow, I, I think, lucky enough to, to, to only get a yellow in that one as well. 10 of Mayo's 14 points came from freeze and marks. That's one thing I would say. There wasn't a lot of scoring from play. There wasn't marks that count. Marks count. They do, they're, of course. They're, they're from play. Like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Obviously, they ruin the flow of the game. You know, you can get a very handy mark, but um, it'll, it'll certainly be something that Kevin McStay is thinking about. Um, it's funny; it's a different atmosphere to the Mayo League win in 2019. 2019 was like a watershed moment, national title, first one in a while. This is brilliant. Whereas yesterday felt like, okay, and it's probably because of proximity to the to the championship, isn't it, that they can't really celebrate this one. The front of the actual Irish Times this morning has a picture of Aidan O'Shea looking up to the heavens at the full-time whistle. So obviously it, it did mean something to them, yeah. you know. It wasn't nothing. Galway couldn't just, just couldn't get level. You know, eight points to five down at the break. Um, I think they got back to within a point again in the second half, but they just couldn't get that, that score to bring them level, which I think psychologically would have been fairly significant. I wouldn't be too concerned if I was a Galway fan. Not at all. Um, uh, they're waiting in the quote-unquote long grass for whoever wins that, that yeah, mayor and sure, look, none of these matches matter until despite what uh, everybody in Ulster will have you believe Rory Gallagher is saying the Ulster Football Championship is a great structure it's not, it's not, it just isn't it just isn't, it makes no sense not anymore it's actually pun- punishing the good teams in Ulster by making them all beat the shit out of each other and then getting uh, all the way through to a round robin stage and arriving absolutely shattered from the process it makes no sense mm. and you all voted for it and you're all going to suffer as a result of it there should be an Ulster winner of the All-Ireland this year we should be heavily leaning towards it given that there are so many strong teams up there 
and you're all going to kill each other well, and then all of a sudden arriving out and then you get picked off by teams who are inferior. That's my prediction. Yeah, well, the, see the throw man and match in, in Oma in the Ulster quarterfinal. In a normal year, I would be looking at that game with such nerves and now I'm like, I couldn't care less. If Monaghan lose that game, I couldn't care less. Honestly. Because it's all about the, the group stages, as you What's say. What's the last screen? The last screen, we're moving on to Arsenal and City. We've kind of touched on City and yeah. Grealish and that, that performance, generally speaking. But uh, Arsenal team that we often get criticised for not covering maybe as well as we should. Uh, and again, that, that game seems like ages ago. But the 4-1 win against Leeds, Gabriel Jesus' return has really been cemented now. Um, I mean, this title race... Are they going to win the league? <laughs> they should from here, right? You'd make them... Yeah. Like, you would say that they have everything they need. They've no distractions. They've got a really strong level of depth it appears they've survived their best and most important striker being out for two months two and a half months yeah so it's definitely it's theirs to lose winning run of, top of seven games now it's whoever blinks first at this stage I'd love a title race where neither of them blink they just keep going full speed ahead until the end of the season it doesn't happen that way ever someone will blink um, so it's just a matter of who at least Arsenal have that leeway where they can maybe drop a few points but uh, it's going to be some. Why does it feel to me that Pep Guardiola is still going to be the manager lifting the trophy at the end of the season? Well, because that's what, that's he what always is. Yeah, you've been conditioned to exactly. see it. Past performance is no indicator of. Anyway, right. Okay, uh, that is this week's episode of the Gillette Labs Performance Rankings. OTBAN's Performance Rankings with Gillette. Braeburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of Off the Ball. Braeburn Coffee is coming to an Apple Green near you. New Braeburn locations are popping up every month. So visit Apple Green Stores. Dot com to find your nearest Braeburn coffee experience. OTB AM. Right, uh, as you were hearing there from Kenny Cunningham, it was a 2-0 victory for Newcastle against Manchester United. We had the game live on Off the Ball on Newstalk yesterday and it leaves Manchester United in a very interesting situation where obviously there's still cup glory to be won and there is still a place in the top four to be won. Daniel Harris joins us now to uh, reflect on the game yesterday and where they are generally. Uh, what did you make of the performance? What, what, was, what was behind it? Uh, I think it was the culmination of a few factors that we've seen kind of maturing over the last few weeks. United are the busiest team in world football. The players look like they're a bit tired now and they're not able to rotate in quite the same way as, as some of the teams above us, Manchester City in particular, just because they don't have as many good players. Also, I mean, it's been the case over the season. I've been on here before saying when Casemiro doesn't play, they aren't good. And the main thing that I felt has been holding them back the last couple of years has been not having a proper player in Casemiro's position. So when he isn't there, the drop-off to the player who comes in to replace him is colossal. And that also makes a massive difference. But it also just looks like physically and mentally they're, they're spent a little bit. So they weren't able to produce the same level of intensity that Newcastle were. Obviously, it's difficult to recover that intensity now when over the next two months they have quarterfinals of the Europa League, semi-final of the FA Cup and all of the games in the Premier League that uh, are, are later this season than they would have been in previous years because of the World Cup. So is there a prospect of them finishing well outside the top four or are they going to be able to dig in? Because the, the fixture list is on paper relatively kind but then you remember half these teams are fighting for relegation and so all of a sudden uh, aren't going to be rolling over the way that maybe in previous years at this time of the year fixtures were a bit more of a gimme well the, the, the record against teams that aren't that good is actually not bad at all that United's home record is excellent the problem really has been away games against good teams and they don't have too many of those to come I guess I don't think that they'll drop out the top four partly because I don't think the teams that they're competing with are good enough to put in the kind of run that it's going to take to overtake them 
Um, I mean, it does mean that the game on Wednesday at home to Brentford feels like a really important game because if they can't rebound from a difficult game against Newcastle, then you could go to Newcastle, play well and still and still lose because Newcastle are a good team. So that that result is, the manner of it wasn't great, but it is pop, like you, you can sometimes lose those games. But if they're unable to get a result against Brentford at home, then you start to look like they really do have a problem. But... I can't, it doesn't look like Tottenham are going to put together the kind of run that will get them in fourth. Because even last season when they did it, they only really did it because of the incompetence of United and Arsenal as well. It wasn't a championship winning run that they put together. They won just about enough games to make it happen. And it doesn't look like they're going to put anything together. Liverpool have been completely unreliable all season and they're quite a long way behind now. So there's no reason again to think that Liverpool are going to put, just going to suddenly go and win every game between now and the end of the season. And it is going to take Liverpool winning almost every game. So I think they'll be okay for top four, but we can see that they're flagging. We've already mentioned the, the Luke Shaw quotes, Daniel, from uh, from uh, uh, yesterday at the top of the show, but uh, for anyone just tuning in, I think they wanted on passion, desire, hunger and attitude. They're talking about Newcastle. They clearly had higher motivation than we had, and that can't be possible. It's not acceptable. I think Luke Shaw referenced himself, the fact that he seems to have to say the same thing every time United have a performance like this. But, but that line about Newcastle having higher motivation, I mean, it's, it's concerning, I think, for United fans to hear the likes of that. Um, I think that... We, as football supporters, we think if I played, I would just give 100% in every game and it's easy to turn up and play with incredible intensity every time. And it isn't. The reason why the teams that win win, one, the reason is because they have the players that are able to do that. And it isn't, it isn't easy to do that. And I guess coming off international break, I think one of the differences I thought was when Eddie Howe made that kind of quite strange victory speech in the dressing room that they decided to show on Sky yesterday, one of the things he said was we've had if this is a reward for the two weeks of hard work we've done. And for United, it wasn't like that because most of the United players were away uh, with, it, with their countries. So Newcastle had had two weeks to prepare for that game because most of their players weren't away and United hadn't. And it felt like it showed that United, Newcastle were primed and ready to go and United had been travelling the world. And I think it does, obviously, you never want to hear a player saying, well, they, they tried harder than us. But I think we underestimate how hard it is to put in that requisite level of intensity every day. So it isn't, no, no, no one wants to see it, but I guess there is also a pattern of these players saying it every time they get beaten. There'll be that kind of hangdog, sullen face interview where they apologise and say that it wasn't good enough and we'll be working really hard to put it right next week. But on the whole, United have, they're, they're quite a, a long way ahead, I think, of where I thought they'd be this season. They've won a trophy, they're in the running for two more, and they're in the running for top four. So it does look like they're going in the right direction. And if you have a look at the team, so Mikel Arteta wanted a player in the summer, in, in, in the transfer window. He was going to get Madrid until he got outbid by Chelsea. Um, then, then he got Jorginho and Trossard. United got Wout Weghorst so, uh, and uh, Zabitzer. So they weren't. They didn't back the manager in the way that the manager needed backing, which made some kind of sense in that if the players that you, that you want aren't available, then just take what you can get on loan. But they, they've sort of hit their ceiling. This is where they are as a team, I think, at the moment. They're probably, I think, the third best team in the league. They're good enough to be any team on a good day, but they can also produce some absolute nonsense. And the next level is raising the bottom level of the team, I think, which the next couple of the players will, will, will help do. They've got a centre-forward that's better than Valt Venkos, for example, I think you'll see a very significant improvement in that team. And 
not, and I mentioned earlier they were missing Casemiro, but they're also missing Christian Eriksen, who gives them some kind of midfield composure and control. And then you're down to Zarbitzer, who's hardly played for United, and Scott McTominay, who aren't as good as the players that they've replaced. Without Veghorst, is that experiment finished now? Anthony Martial replacing him after an hour. He's clearly a better footballer than Wout Veghorst. Uh, is the whole thing finished now? Is, the, is, that, is this the last we'll see, essentially, of Wout Veghorst in this, in this United team? Uh, never underestimate Anthony Martial's ability to do something that means he can't play for United. So, I mean, I, I hope so, because even when Martial came on, there was just a few moments where you could see the difference. Mm. Where there, I think there was a count, you might get the ball in their own half, and Martial carries it forward, and all of a sudden you've got an attack. And I generally, like, he's better, I would say, at almost everything than Veghorst, apart probably maybe Veghorst is better at pressing, but there's no reason why Martial shouldn't be good at pressing, because he's faster. Um, so he should be able to press if he does what he's told. So if Martial is fit and can stay fit to the rest of the season, that will make a colossal difference. I mean, no one ever wants to be the person that says Anthony Martial will bring freshness and energy to any kind of football team. But a fit Anthony Martial is a really good player. So hopefully that will that will give United the opportunity to someone to play off. Because Veghorst, he, he doesn't hold the ball up that well. He's not that good in the air for someone of that height either. But Martial looks a lot like what Ten Hag's idea of a centre-forward looks like, in that he's got some pace, he can come off and hold it up, he can finish, he can run with the ball. The question with Martial is, can he find the intensity that you need to bring it every game, every game, every game, and can he stay fit? And if he is able to stay fit, then there isn't that long to go. And he also really is playing for his future at United, because United are going to sign a striker in the summer, and he's vulnerable because they need to generate money, and they're going to sign someone to go in front of him. So, there's a challenge for him there and he either meets that challenge or he doesn't. But even his sort of 60% of Anthony Martial is probably a better player than 100% of Val Vegost. Uh, one of the reasons why they didn't back the manager in the last transfer window was because they'd obviously spent all of their money in the summer. Um, we talked a bit about uh, so Casemiro obviously I think everybody would agree he's been a good signing Martinez I think you, you would largely say has been a, a good signing as well. The amount of money that they spent on, on Anthony um, I mean, they might have been able to spend, if they hadn't signed him, they would have been able to buy Trossard, for example, or somebody like that uh, at um, in the January window. So there is a, while the money doesn't really matter, it does matter in terms of them not having available funds. Uh, no no transfer system is, is, is flawless. For a period of time, Liverpool's was perfect, and then that fell away, and you can see how important the, the quality of recruitment is. So... Uh, what needs to happen next when it comes to recruitment? Does Ten Hag need more people helping him to make decisions so that uh, they don't overpay for players and that they're a bit more sensible about whatever the budget is in the summer? Uh, I don't think so. I, I mean, he went for players that he knew, which does make does ring some alarm bells, but at the same time, because United were where they were, it felt like the players that Ten Hag knew were probably the best players that they could get because they wanted not just to come to United for United, they wanted to come and be managed by him. And it was just his personal pull as well as the pull of United. But I think with Anthony, I thought Anthony played quite well yesterday and they didn't get him enough of the ball because he had the beating of Dan Byrne. And I was surprised when, that he got taken off when he did. Um, Ten Hag knows Anthony well. And so we either think that he understands more about what Anthony's ceiling is than we do or not. I mean, it doesn't mean he can't make mistakes, but... He obviously feels that Anthony has what it takes to succeed at United. And I I quite like what I've seen of Anthony. He hasn't he hasn't torn it up, but he scored some important goals. Coming to a new league, 
having not really had a preseason, moving countries and having an injury in a World Cup in the middle of it. Sure, but the, he, I, I suppose my point is that there is a cost in overpaying that, uh, like, in the long run, the transfer doesn't matter. The transfer fee doesn't matter to a club of Manchester United size, except uh, in January you leave yourself short because you've spent all your money. Um, I don't, right, but let's say, let's say they'd bought a different player to Anthony, let's say for £50 million, pounds, would the right player that they wanted, the, whether the midfield player or the striker, been available for the difference between what they could have spent on somebody different and what they got for Anthony? I think one of the things I've heard watching football is that you should buy the players that you want. You do sometimes end up buying a player that you didn't want and it works really well. I mean, Arsenal, Trossard wasn't Arsenal's first choice, but Madrid went to Chelsea, so they bought him and it seems to be working well currently. But Arsenal's in a, Arsenal in a different position. Arsenal are looking for a finishing touch. They're looking for a rotation player of someone to just give them that push to get over the line right now. United are looking to build a team that's going to be good next season, the season after, whereas Arsenal sort of already had that. So I don't think that the money, that, that, that difference between what they could have paid and what they did pay and what they couldn't then spend in the start, in, in the winter made a particularly significant difference. Because one thing I've learned is that any footballer, any transfer that works is worth every penny. You're lucky enough to pay for it because lots of transfers don't work. So I don't think that, I don't think that overpaying for Anthony, and I, I mean, we all agreed that they did overpay for Anthony, but I don't think that overpaying for Anthony massively cost them because it wouldn't have meant that the player that they wanted in this last winter window would necessarily have been available for the difference between what they spent and what they could have spent. I suppose we'll never know. We, we don't have access to the, the list of players. I, it just, it, it, I don't think it's fair to say that the club didn't back the manager to sign players. I didn't say that. In, in winter when uh, clearly they spent all the money in the summer and um, that's why they ended up with Veghorst and Sabitzer though. Uh, so no, but the market but that you're spent... shopping in when you don't have any money is different from the market you shop in when you do have money. Yeah, of course. But the reason why they didn't, they didn't back him isn't because they spent all the money. I mean, whose money is it? They spent all the money that the Glazers were prepared to allow United to have rather than spend it paying off their debts and paying off their dividends. It's not, it's not that the United have, it's not that Ten Hag is spent everything that's in, that's in the bank. It's that what they're allowing him to spend. Is yeah, the budget, but everybody has and a budget. Like even Chelsea had a budget at some point. Did, right. But look how much, look, look what Chelsea did. They were just went and spent what they, I mean, not, they didn't necessarily spend it wisely. But they spend they spend the money that they need. When City buy a player and the player doesn't work, they just cycle through another. How many centre backs and full backs and goalkeepers Pep Guardiola buy? Because there isn't really a budget. I mean, of course you can't just go and buy every player in the world, but ultimately they are spending whatever's necessary. And I think one of the reasons United also couldn't spend in the winter was because why would the, the Glazers looking like they're going to sell? Why would they want to go and spend more money at this point when they're looking to sell the club? So I don't. I don't think I w- I'm not blaming Ten Hag for the fact that there wasn't money available for him to spend. That is, that's what the Glazers do. They'll allow some money, but it has felt like all the way through with the Glazers, you're always chasing. They're all, even even with even this is the case even under Fergie. If you think that what United bought Owen Hargreaves in the summer of 2007, they didn't buy a midfield player until Nick Powell arrived in the summer of 2012. 
that's not because Fergie doesn't like midfield players. It's because there's always there's there's, there's stringent budget controls, and the Glazers are in, aren't interested in winning as much as they're interested in dividends and debt repayments. So I don't the I didn't lose yesterday necessarily because of the Glazers. But if we're talking about transfer strategy, United's transfer strategy is dominated and determined by what the Glazers want to do with United's money and how much of it they want to take. At that okay, but at the juncture. same time, that, that that does absolve Ten Hag of any responsibility for spending. 95 million on Anthony when the market was probably less than that but they found themselves in such a situation where they'd obsessed about it they'd publicly linked themselves with him to the point where it was Anthony or bust and you know you can't say that Anthony's been uh, an, a massive success and I guess what I'm saying is that if if uh, Ten Hag makes similar signings in the future where they're not an immediate success the, the period at which it's going to uh, take Manchester United to be proper title contenders is going to be extended. Um, right, but if you let's look at the players he bought. He bought Tyrone Malassia, 15 million quid. It's been, it's been good. He bought Martinez, who's been brilliant. He bought Casemiro, who's been brilliant. And he's bought Anthony, who I think is good. I, I, and Anthony wasn't bought just for this season. So the, it's pointless saying, well, in the eight months that he's played for United, the 30 games or whatever is he's played for United, he scored, what, eight goals or something? Five assists? That's not bad. I don't think that, do, you, do you think those are bad numbers? He scored against Arsenal, scored an important goal against Everton, he scored the goal against Barcelona, he scored against Betis. So he's, he's, he hasn't been, he hasn't destroyed the league. But he's 23, 24. I think he's just turned, he just turned 24. If you look at other good players, what was Sadio Mane doing at that age? What was Mohamed Salah doing at that age? He's at the right age to improve quickly as the team improves around him. He'll also look a lot better if he can get a good right back. If he had a right back of Luke Shaw's quality on his side, he would also look a lot better. I don't look at Anthony and think, why did, why did you spend this money on this player? I look at him and I see a good player with potential. And, and I also see a manager who signed three other excellent players. So I don't feel that I'm mistrusted of him because he want, because he decided that Anthony was the right winger that he had to have. So they overspent by £20 million on him because ultimately those those are numbers. The player's either good or he isn't. Sure, that they, million, they are numbers. I'm saying it. that 20 million quid, that 20 million quid is not the difference between where United are now and United being very but much better off than they are. It could have, they could have signed a right back for that though. That, that's the point. There's an opportunity cost when you but, overpay and Manchester United are still paying a, a tax and that, that tax is a, a, a cost you would argue, I would argue, from the mismanagement of, of the previous decade. But we're getting stuck on, on Anthony. What about the rest of the, the next four or five weeks? You, you talked about the squad not being strong enough to have the same rotation as Manchester City. They're obviously going to need to rest players. Casemiro has automatically uh, been rested for the last few weeks. Is the hope that... And the rest. He's had half the winter off, that guy. <laughs> is, is the hope then that like it's going to be him versus the rest of the Premier League for the rest of the season and that might just be enough because he's that good? Um, well, you got it's not just that he's that good. It's just the balance that he gives the team, having someone in that position that the team has lacked for so long. And it, it just makes it, 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 the fact that it's him is obviously very helpful. But if it was someone else as well, it would also make a difference because just someone who knows how to play that position helps you dictate the game. And if you suddenly have Varane, Martinez, Casemiro, that little triangle, that gives you a good opportunity to be strong in the middle of the pitch. So forcing your opponents wide when they attack and helping you dominate the middle of the pitch. Christian Eriksen's on the way back. 
um, as with Anthony Martial's coming back, and all of a sudden you've got a spine that enables the rest of the team to function. Bruno Fernandes obviously massively overplayed. He, he's the busiest. I saw a statistic yesterday. But he's the busiest player in world football. I'm surprised he hasn't had a little bit more time off. It's probably at the point now where he's not getting any. But they start to once you have those Casemiro and Eriksen back, it gives you just a bit more variety and control in the midfield because. That those are your those are your playmakers. Casemiro also scores goals. United haven't had that over the last couple of games, and they've got to somehow get through the next two games without Casemiro. By which point, Eriksen probably be quite close to coming back as well. So I would be surprised if United managed to botch the top four from here. The cup competitions, who knows? Brighton's a really hard game anyway, and you can lose a one-off game to anyone. And um, they are probably the best team left in the Europa League. They could win that. They should beat Sevilla. Sevilla aren't very good. Just fired their manager. Um, but again, well, that transforms the, that transforms the season if they manage to win that because obviously uh, everything that it brings with it and it to be the perfect end to the year. Um, I, I do just need to ask you about Max Rashford before we wrap up here. Um, his form was so amazing that it was carrying the team along for a period of time in terms of the goals that he was scoring in uh, in narrow victories. Um, and as it's come off a slight bit over the last couple of weeks, the team have been largely unable to score. So for as as goes Casemiro, as goes United, but equally as goes Rashford. Are you any concerns about him? Um, I think part of it is the absence of Casemiro and Eriksen means that he's getting less good possession. That if all of a sudden your midfield's Fred, McTominay, Zabitza or whoever, there's not you're not going to be able to dominate the ball in the same way. So I don't think I'm particularly worried about Rashford in that no one is, he's not Ronaldo. He's, a, he's an excellent player, but he's not going to score in all the games. You have to be, you have to be ready for him to go a few games without goal. And United are now three league games without goal. But once, once the, once he starts getting a bit more service from midfield, then I think we'll see that he's able to start scoring again. But he was, he was poor yesterday. Is he world class? Is, is he world class, Daniel? We had that discussion on the show last week. Is Marcus Rashford world class? Uh, I mean, we're going to need to define our terms here. We're saying world class is what? If there was a team or if there was a squad of players to take on the Martians, the players that play in that squad are world class? Or are we saying the best five players in the world are world class? What do we What do we mean by that? Well, like I, I'm probably thinking if you're the best, top ten in, in a position in the world, then you're world class. But I guess everyone top has 10, their own. That's a lot of world class lads. I was on players. 20 last week. I've rolled back. So there's 110 world-class players in the world. That's, that sounds like a lot. But um, I would say, if we're saying top 10, then, yeah, I think I think he's in the top 10. But we need to see more of it because he's been brilliant for seven months or eight months or whatever. But for me to say, well, you're one, you're one of the best players in the world, you need to do it over a stretch rather yeah. than you're someone who's been That's one of the point. best players in the world for the last four weeks or whatever. Yeah, all right. We've got to leave it there, Daniel. Good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Yeah, Sorry, right. good day, everyone. That's uh, Daniel Harris giving us his thoughts on the situation at Man United there. OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night edition available now. Uh, ultimate Monday misery morning in OTV with Liverpool, United and Ulster, uh, Munster losing, says Powell74. Uh, you're obviously not a Liverpool and Man United fan. Half and uh, half, sure. So, uh, fair play to you. Do you still think Rashford is world class and worth 500 grand a week? You're gas men, to be fair, says Tommy Tommy. I would. I mean, I think that. Um, I like. Yeah, I. I think that uh, it's worth that money that for sure. Uh, like the money is irrelevant to football fans. It, it doesn't make sense. It's to, monopoly to money. To the fans, but it, but it, I, to my point about spending all the money on Anthony, it means that you don't have money to sign other players. And then when you say the club didn't back the manager, it's like, well, he, they did back the manager. They gave him everything he wanted. They put all their chips into the middle. 
for Anthony and yeah, it, ha- it hasn't worked. The problem is Manchester United, you know, United would have paid 20 million over the odds for Anthony anyway because United United's transfer fees are put up because they're Manchester United. But that's a bit a bit thick, isn't it? Well, they have to overpay for players. Well, they, they don't. have no choice. They don't. You have a choice not to. Your scouting could be better. So you can get the players before they're actually already at the stage where they're overpriced. You can shop in different markets. Sometimes. But there's some players where you just want to buy a player desperately. The manager has an obsession over a player and needs to buy them. And yeah, and that doesn't make any sense. That, so I think that... Why doesn't I, it? Look, I think Ten Hag, because they, they wasted all the money on Anthony. But, but Anthony's but, not a waste yet, is he? Well, like, are you ruling? Are you ruling Anthony out of being good ever in his Manchester United career? No, but that's not the point. The point is that uh, they had no money to sign anybody at Christmas when they really needed to freshen the squad because they'd spent all the money on Anthony. So there's a cost to the, to, to the money that isn't just a cost; it's an opportunity cost. Yeah. If they if they if they're weak at right back, I mean, did they not sign Malaysia for that? Is that well, he's more of a uh, more of a left. Back, Seems to, anyway. possibly, okay. but like, but I, I, I wonder, are United just a couple of signings away from being contenders? Like, is it just a striker and a right back? The rest of the squad looks fairly decent on paper, but we'll then again, there's performances like yesterday, so it, they will shape up um, in those two positions in the summer. They'll obviously, as Daniel say, buy a striker, um, and they will buy a right back. So I'd be fascinated to see if that improves the team. But um, there's a lot of there's a lot of holes. Yeah, it's it's a concern yesterday, I think. So, Ten Hag didn't look a happy man, and uh, rightly so. Uh, come on, Jar, you're Mr. OTBAM, and no Villa Emery in the green. Have a word with that Cork fella, says Chris Cal. You should be tuned in to the uh, football kickoff every Friday at 11, Chris Cal. Uh, but, I mean, they're not Emery. I mean, he got game, what? Oh, what, a, what a manager. I mean, yeah, it's a missed opportunity. I'd say the likes of Spurs are looking at that going, ah. There was an excellent point that Phil made on um, Friday when he was talking about Unai Emery's time at Arsenal and how they'd get into winning positions and then he'd make conservative substitutions and that didn't really... Now, I, for, uh, did they qualify for the Champions League every year? There, did he manage to, you know. uh, so in retrospect, was he actually a bit of a success at Arsenal but just that their standards were still... They, they, they were remembering peak finger. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not, I'd need to go back and look at his time at Arsenal. But um, it was interesting yesterday when he had the opportunity... He brought on Leon Bailey for Emi Bundia instead of just bringing on another centre back or another defensive midfielder. So uh, it looks like he still has. He's learning. That's what you want. That's all you want. He's an exciting manager. I was at Philip Park for his first game and I was just thinking, there's a buzz about this man. Yeah. There's just something different about him. I like Uday Emery. So yeah, I think Villa fans this morning waking up. Maybe they should have been in the green, but look. Uh, JP Wright says Newcastle have been fantastic this season. The squad was put together in a fraction of Man United's credit. Freddie Howe, please. I mean, could they have signed. Couldn't couldn't they have signed the good right back that that if they if they're desperate for right back wasn't that available to them for a long period of time but they decided not to go down the trippier route? Yeah, I mean, Newcastle were in right. relegation trouble last season, and now all of a sudden they're challenging for top four. Turns out money money works. Uh, yeah, but money, but also like also Eddie Howe, yeah, credit no. where credit is due. Yeah, because didn't Man United spend more than them in the summer? <laughs> didn't they? Asha, don't let facts get in the way of it. Eight thirty four this morning here on OTBM. Let's turn our attention to rugby. Alison Miller is with us to talk to us about the absolute hammering that France handed out. Uh, uh, a 14-player France side against uh, Ireland in Musgrave Park. Alison, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, guys. How are you? That was a difficult watch on Saturday as um, it didn't really look competitive at any level for any section of the game. No, unfortunately not. I think there is... Um massive gulf between those two teams um, and that was evident watching the game especially like you know we saw the card and thought that would be good for Ireland but unfortunately we didn't 
uh, we weren't able to take opportunity those opportunities presented by having an extra women you know um, so a lot's being spoken about the team at the moment in terms of the age profile and the the decade long lack of investment in it What? so it, it always seems like a pie of responsibility some of the responsibilities absolutely with the players who are there at the moment but uh, if those players haven't been acclimatised to international rugby, then the questions are, why have they not been acclimatised over a long period of time? Why is the age profile the way it is? Why is the experience profile the way it is? And that's a fundamental question that we have to ask, really, of the IRFU. It seems from the outside. Yeah, I suppose there's a systemic um, failures probably for since... I would say with our last success was 2015 and uh, obviously 2017 World Cup that I played in was a failure in terms of performance. And I think probably from around 2016 onwards, we kind of, um, the team started to perform a little bit less effectively every year. And that kind of pushed on and pushed on and pushed on to where we are now. Um like the IRFU now are putting a lot of work and a lot of effort in, but unfortunately um, it's happened too late. So we are where we are now. And um, yeah, like the players that are, are playing at the weekend, they're very young. They're very in- inexperienced, um, majority of them. And like, you know, that's going to take time for them to, to get used to the international level and be exposed to that the physicality of the international game because, um, if you look at that French team, the French league is very strong, as is the English league. The AL, like, isn't where it needs to be. So, like, it's about what can, I suppose, the management do to bridge that gap to get the intensity that those other teams play at week in, week out um, in the lead up to, you know, any given year. How do you kind of maybe bring that intensity to um, the girls that are full time in the high performance century because you got to try and match what's going on can you bring that into your to your camps I suppose probably maybe where things were lost from 2013 14 15 they were like the really good years and I think the RFU had an opportunity to really build the game on the back of that success like really really get girls playing you know um, use that success to build a game and be ambitious about it and um, that didn't happen and all the focus was put into sevens and I love the sevens game and when I speak about that I was a sevens player as well as a 15s player spent all day yesterday watching the World Series so it's not like I'm not a fan of it but it's a bit like having two kids and you put all your attention and all your focus on on one child and you completely ignore the other, the other is going to flourish. And that's as simple as that. And that's not saying that the sevens shouldn't have got that attention. I just think when you favour one and ignore the other, that is going to happen, unfortunately. And look, I and loads of people, we want to see the sevens team qualify for the Olympics and they're in a really good position to do that. And it's not, and I'm like 100%, it's not saying that they, the sevens team, which I was part of and, and I saw how well resourced and well looked after we were. It's not saying that, that that shouldn't have happened. It's just saying that you got a resource for both, you know, in the same way, which like didn't happen. I was a member of both teams, like so. Um, and look, there's no doubt we had if we had some of the sevens girls yesterday, 
not yesterday, Saturday, um, it would have made a difference, but it's not going to solve the problem. So that's being realistic too, you know? You've probably answered this question, Alison, in, in saying that. Like, it struck me in uh, both on Saturday and the previous week against Wales as well. The team are missing a certain type of player. They don't really have ball carriers. Uh, you know, you look at the French team and they're, they're, they're packed full of them. Is that just because our, our best ball carriers are with the sevens, or is that a is that a, a, a deeper problem? Well, like they're they're two very different games, and not let's not um, say that you know, like our sevens players are going to be backs. And yes, like if you have Amy Lee Murphy Crow and Baven Parsons that are able to beat people and. Um, you know, have a playmaker like Stacey Flood and Eve Higgins. Like, they are very, very good players. But you're also looking at, you need big ball carriers like Sophie Spence was in the day. Like like the players like Sam Monaghan there and different things like that. But um, two different games and, like, um, I suppose it's also things like the nuances of the front five that um, are even the pack that are very, very important as well. That... I would have no idea about I've been playing rugby all my life. And um, like my husband was a hooker. So like <laughs> I listened to him talking about the intricacies of scrums and, you know, that tight play and different things like that. That, you know, like me as a back, I, I won't have an iota of what goes on. And so look, yes, they're like in the back line and but that's not going to solve the problem, especially when you're coming up against very, very physical French players from the front row to the back row. Like, um, so it would solve some of the problems, but it's definitely not going to like, you know, make our team a Grand Slam team overnight. That's not going to happen, unfortunately. Um, is there a sense that there's a, a, a group of players who are not being picked or not involved in the squad who would immediately be more experienced and more used to the vagaries of it or is that narrative wrong what, what's your instinct about that because we, we're certainly hearing that there's a, a core group of players who are kind of in their peak years now who are seasoned and more experienced and would be better capable of implementing a game plan just by virtue of the fact that they have an extra 10-15 caps or an extra 3 or 4 years of experience that these players who it feels could end up being brutalised by the experience of playing for Ireland now as opposed to actually enjoying it? Well, look, I hope, like, you know, it's a very difficult time now at the moment for, you know, Lickler Friday and the captain. And, like, someone asked me the other day, like, did you ever have those massive defeats? And, like, I was lucky that I came in in 2010 and I never had massive defeats like that. We had defeats, but I'm just thinking of my first year, like, year we lost to France 19-9, you know, close enough game. 2012 we got defeated but it wasn't by massive scorelines like that but if you think back to the players I played with like Fiona Cant Fiona Cantwell I'm calling her Lynn Cantwell Fiona Coughlin Joy Neville uh, like even Grace David like they shipped massive losses and they'll tell you that themselves and they stuck with it and stuck with it and just kept their head down and stuck with it so like you just hope the thing now is there's more media attention on that. So like every massive loss is highlighted. So you're just hoping that the girls now will just stick to it um, and don't get disillusioned. And look, the media hype has completely, which is like great, but it's also more difficult for players when 
you're getting those losses. But to answer your question, like I kind of had a look at like from 2015, no, 2016 on, there's been massive chopping and changing of players um, for quite a long time. And I kind of looked at squads and saw where girls were and like where have they gone and you know, some have retired, some have just left the game, some are still maybe playing clubs, some have moved on to other sports, some have had children. Um, some have completely like gone back to other sports and like and like I'm even thinking of like twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen when I played and even twenty seventeen when I thought, Jesus, things aren't going well, like we were still w- winning games and we were still like twenty seventeen, which I thought we didn't play particularly well, but we won all our games in the Six Nations bar England. Like 2018, you know, you're winning two or three games. And I was thinking at the time, Jesus, this is poor, but <coughs> we're still competitive. So where are those players gone? I think it, it probably resulted from a lot of chopping and changing of different people in, different people out. And like, unlike the men's game where you are, like you're contracted, like if you're not playing for Ireland, you're playing for a club and you're getting paid and you're making a livelihood. But to sustain... To be an international rugby player, to be an elite player, to play at that level and play well, the training that you need to do back then. Oh, yeah, you're all right. Am I gone? We can still hear you. Oh. Um, the battery's gone. To be a player at that level and to play international rugby uh, and be a full time worker, like not a full time athlete, that's going to be tough if you're not getting picked and there's no reward. So I think those players filter out of the game, unlike the men's game where they stay playing and get better for the provinces because it's a livelihood. So that has been a problem as well. So people have just gone out of the game and like there is a few players that could play, but I look at him, is he trying to pick the younger players who are going to be there in five years time? And I don't know. And there's certainly like players there that you're like, I think they they would do a good job, but um, it's very complicated. I mean, you try and like, I was trying to think what, like, like unfortunately, like there is, there has been now like um, jobs advertised for basically scouts for the provinces that go around and try and build talent. And unfortunately, like that's happened too late. I remember saying that to someone in the RFU in 2017 after a World Cup because I come from a small club, Port Leash. I'm from the country. I started off playing rugby, played a lot of sports growing up, played county football, did athletics, and just kind of fell into rugby. Loved it, but like no one was going to see. The games that I played in, I went for Leinster trials, didn't get picked because I was raw, you know what I mean? I wasn't probably got the right rugby language and wasn't, but I was very capable. And then I went to Connacht and got picture of that. But like no one was coming to see our games and I'm a big, so I was kind of saying they need to have a scout that goes around to kind of fast track this talent and work with them. And that, I, I said that back in, I've been saying it for a long time, but I've been saying it back in 2017 and it's only happening now. So we're like, playing catch-up now, we're still playing catch-up on the professional teams that are in the Six Nations and they've been professional before. Not our, all our girls are professional and some of them are probably development players that we, we're not seeing in the Six Nations. So it's very nuanced. It's very... Players will have to take responsibility for um, not performing well and doing that, but it's like it's very difficult to fully answer it without looking at every single thing that's built up till now, you know? It might seem like a ridiculous question, Alison, given the, a 50, it's a 50-point defeat, but can you take any modicum of positivity from, from the performance on Saturday, like Dan O'Brien at 10 maybe being, being one of them? 
Yeah, like 100% because I suppose you should never go down the dark section of comments in the 42 mm-hmm. or anything like that. But if you read them, people are like, oh, let, let them give up. That's terrible. How could they have been approved? But like, realistically, if they played the way they did against France, against Wales, it would be a different scoreline because they brought things in like their ability to defend them all was better. Like their defence was better. Dan O'Brien at 10. I thought Grace Moore at 7 was very, very good. Sam Monaghan, you know, and there was these glimmers of hope and um, I suppose they did, they did like penetrate the line more. They got more go forward. They just couldn't capitalise then on opportunities, which you're hoping maybe if you have, um, and this is not disrespect to the players there, but if you have, you probably were lacking uh, like a big line breaker in the back line and um, that could finish those things off, you know? So, and there was improvements. Yeah, definitely. And, um, Look, these players will need time and there will be patience needed. And it is hard if you're if you're losing 50 points to three, especially if it's a 14-woman um, France and you're not. Um, but I suppose there's a big disparity in the physicality of the players as well. And um, at, the, at the, you know, you just got to figure out a way to, to, to get better and I think one of the problems I think and I think this is one thing that annoyed me for a long long time I think this might have been part of the problem as well from about 2016 constantly you know management and people and players coming out in the media saying we're transitioning we're transitioning and like I don't know but I think if you are a player and you are in that and you're constantly hearing we're in transition we're in transition it nearly it has that been a factor in where we are today because you're kind of giving yourself an outlaw to perform and that happened from 2016 on where we're rebuilding, we're transitioning. That that just got to stop. I think at some stage you just got to say, we're not good enough now at the moment, but we're going to do everything in our power to be better. Like I remember being in a training camp and a player turned around to me and said, well, but we're in transition. And I just nearly lost the plot. I was like, what? Like, you can't be saying that. Like, you can't be saying it's okay, we're in transition because that's not going to help you on match day when you're losing the game or because the other team don't care. So I think that probably that messaging from 2016 constantly from management through the media, that gets hammered home. And I think that hasn't helped to where we're getting to now. Um, you just got to accept that you, we're not good enough at the moment. And I think, you know, you just got to work in your power. to like. And the girls will say that at the moment that they're not good enough at the moment in certain areas but they're, they're constantly they're will going to be improved and I think um, that's just it. the girls will have to just really really work hard on that and the full time <clears throat> contracts will help that but unfortunately we're chasing now aren't we because we were the last union to do that and I, th- and I feel like we were kind of pushed into it we didn't take we weren't ambitious and try and get ahead of the posse when we could have we, we, kind, we were the last country to do it so that has been problematic in, and obviously the range of contracts. And we've got to a stage where a lot of people have left the game and they might have taken up contracts um, back 2017, maybe, you know, because they were looking at a World Cup that they could have qualified for. But um, now the World Cup, you've got to be a younger player maybe to to take those contracts because they're, they're, they're quite low in the actual sum of them. And, you might want to be like if you were older and you're in a good job and you're on the career ladder, you're maybe not going to risk that. So yeah. there's so many factors in this, really. Yeah, 
All right. It's a factory of sadness at the moment. Alison, great to have you with us. Thanks a million. And no problem, guys. Bye-bye. It's Alison Miller giving us some considered thoughts on the situation at the weekend where Ireland got hammered. Uh, Fergus Keogh was asking whether it be a fear of Ireland shipping 100 against England. There must be. Like, there, there actually yeah. there has to be at this stage. So uh, Transition, that's an interesting point. Because like, I, I actually think it's a legitimate thing to say a team's in transition, but I, I fully take Alison's point that it can probably change the psychology of a team. Like... I think genuinely teams can be in transition, but the, the problem, as Alison says, is how long are you in transition for? Like, since 2016, we appear to have been in that. Well, I, I think that the signal coming from the IRFU when they decided to pick their favourite child of the Sevens team, and mm. Alison identified it there, that's the original sin. And everything stems from that, where they're like, well, that's that. That's, the 15th game isn't important. But the difficulty now is that the 15th game is the one that... So, Alison said she was watching the, the Hong Kong Sevens. I think Ireland finished just out of where they needed to finish to guarantee automatic qualification. There's one round of qualification still left for the Olympics and that they've put, again, the chips are in the centre of the table trying to, to qualify for the Olympics. But in Ireland, has that had crossover appeal to the fans? So the games, the women's games are on Virgin and uh, RTE. So everybody sees them and everybody's yeah. seeing the rugby team get hammered. Is that good for the long-term for recruitment of hearts and minds and a new fan base. And also for interest, young girls getting involved. They, like Young girls are watching the Irish women's football team play and win and get to World Cups and they're probably thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind doing that. But if you're watching, if young girls are tuning into the, the rugby team, the reality is results Did anybody matter. watch the sevens though? That's the, like, no. uh, like, you have to go looking for it to find exactly, it. Exactly, yes. And so did they make the right decision or did they make the wrong decision? And if, even if they'd made the wrong decision by prioritising the sevens, not backing up the 15s, the way all the other unions have eventually realised it was was the original sin. And they'll, they'll talk about money, but the RFU have been sitting on loads of money for a long period of time and they chose not to invest in the women's game until, as Alison said, it feels a little bit like they were forced into it. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, there's definitely a concern about the players who aren't available at the moment and who aren't being chosen or aren't being picked. And there's a lost generation there that's hollowed out. So a lot of pressure on the coaching ticket, a lot of pressure on the players and the IRFU not really coming out and saying, actually, you know what, this isn't acceptable and we have to hold our hands up and say we made a mistake. It's like, oh no, we, we dealt with everything. But um, if there hadn't been that letter in the papers, would any of the investment have happened afterwards or would the IRFU still be going, ah, look, it doesn't really matter. The sevens is where it's at. Mm. It's systemic. Uh, OTBAM live with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back neon night edition available now. Uh, we're turning to the league finals and I'm delighted to say Morris Brosnan of the Irish Examiner is with us to talk to us. Uh, really, we're going to focus on the Division 1 and 2 finals at the moment. Um, let's start with the dubs and Derry. Uh, I, I'd love to know what would have happened if um, if Derry had kept Dublin out for a little bit longer. Uh, at what point did you feel like Derry's resolve slash interest in the fixture waned, Morris? Uh, this is a very simplistic answer, but when Conor Glass went off, I think um, Roy Gallagher has made a big play about the fact that he's a smaller panel than basically everybody else. I think they're working off a panel of 29 versus the typical 36. And when you pull their star midfielder and throw on top of that the fact that their best man marker and Chrissy McCoy both missing, it just felt like the wheels kind of came off from that point on. So, Jerry, I know there's a lot of talk maybe about the dairy structure and the way they were carved open. I just think it's, you pull two key players, they don't have the depth to cover for that. So suddenly, James McCarthy was saying, lovely, he could track Brendan Rodgers over every inch of the ground and he did a great job on him. 
there was no real good matchup for Fenton and Dublin just from that point on they tore him to shreds um, I don't think there was it's a, it's a very simple answer I know but I don't think there was too much more to it than that and is that um, defensive structure that was not evident like because the the, um, the goals that Dublin did score represented about a 50% conversion rate or, or even less <laughs> yeah. in terms of goal chances so was that just Derry being vanilla because they don't want Fermanagh or whoever else later on in the year to see? I, I just I, I can't understand how Derry go from being really good in in Derry against Dublin to uh, having themselves carved open so much. Unless it's down to the dubs and you know a few long balls in, and also Con being Con again. So, so there's there's two parts to my answer. To that I think the first thing is that. Sometimes I, I find it curious. People point to defensive structure for in a situation like that, or even you know, you look at the. I know we're going to talk about the Division One game in a second, but the amount of goal chances Galway coughed up, and some people might point to Conor Loftus, for example, their centre back. And so, oftentimes, I think when you watch it back, the damage is is happening further out the field. It's it's an untracked runner. It's you know John Maher for Galway, for example, and maybe he. Nobody would have expected him to get as much uh, leeway as he did, but his probing runs, nobody's able to track him. And suddenly then it's kind of like a domino effect, you know, from that point on. And that's what, I thought that happened in the, the Dublin game as well. You, these runners punch it from deep. Now, I did think, I don't say this too often, Jerry, I, I thought Desi was very interesting after the game that when he's talking about the amount of work they've done on goals, and especially when, when you take this in the context of the goal chance that they did not take against Upton Derry, when Kirk Kenny looks across, or we don't know if he saw um, it was a cost on the back post, wasn't it? But he decides to fist over for whatever reason. I don't think that's going to happen again for Dublin this year. To the extent where at times I thought they were actually overplaying it at the weekend, and they some of the chances they didn't take newcomers in particular, you would wonder about. But the fact that they were so determined to carve out goal chances was a fairly ominous warning. I think to anybody else who's going to cup against them this year that they uh, they put that right. Will there be a psychology, Morris? Like, there's a distinct possibility that Derry and Dublin will meet again at some point down the line in the championship this year, like in some form. Like, will, will yesterday have a bearing? Do you think it, there's going to be a little bit of a scar given how many goals they conceded? That just isn't a dairy thing to do. Or do you think Rory Gallagher will take a lot from yesterday and say, well, Jesus, it was a one-off. We'll learn from it. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Shane. I, I don't know if it's a psychological damage in terms of playing against Dublin versus playing in Crow Park. It was mm-hmm. an often a criticism that I wasn't necessarily sure about that will this system hold up in Crow Park? And they've been carved open for goals whether you like it or not, the last two times they played there, Galway did it to them in a very similar fashion. It has to be said, you know, this quick break out, that was one thing that was noticeable with Dublin is that they were try- it was, reminded me a bit of, it was kind of 2012-2013 tactics where you've got a lot of players behind the ball, but as soon as you turn over, you're determined to break as quickly as you can. Tom Lahiff had a goal chance in the first half, which was remarkably similar to that, which is basically, we have the ball and it's a ball run then. Everybody is, is flooding forwards. Um, so from that perspective, I don't think it's... Uh, a necessary association with Dublin. The fact they bet Dublin already this year, I, I don't think there'll be much sway with yesterday. But I do think the idea that will this style hold up and go back is now it's a live question, definitely. We're, we're constantly talking about Stephen Cluxton, and, and I know it's probably something that Desi, Desi Farrell would love to just go away, but the reality is he's sitting on the bench and he's a, one of the greatest footballers of all time. Um, should he or will he play any part in the championship for Dublin, do you think? No, that's my answer. Go on. I agree with you, Jerry. Yeah. I, 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 how, how, what's the, how can you look at 
Well, David Hannon has done, to my mind, the standout goalkeeper across both divisions. So, is he just year. in for his leader, for his leadership or He's experience? He's in because they have in the an group. injury crisis. This is, I think, this is. I think everybody's making far too much of this. They have an injury crisis. Evan Comerford, who was their first choice last year, isn't going to be available until later in the championship, is what Desi said on Dubs TV last week. The uh, the under twenties goalkeeper is injured as well. This guy is available to them. I, I think that's all it is, right? Yeah, it's not, not the most interesting conversation if we're, we're all in agreement with each other. But I, I one hundred percent agree. I think. Um, just go back over the league Hanan has done nothing wrong I think they scored 1-2 off his kick out yesterday his mm. save actually yesterday was brilliant he made a great save from Kieran Downs in the loud game week before that go back to the court game he basically saved them that day as well um, he's done everything that has been asked for him there's no there's no way you could point to something in his performance if he's dropped for Bucks and come to the championship I think it sends a, a really bad message to be honest um, so I, I, I agree with you I think it's it's fitting, fitting for a void Comerford did very well last year we weren't sure if O'Hanlon was able to deputise for him it turns out he can uh, let, let him at it I think if Comerford was fit they wouldn't have made the, mm. the SOS call because like so if, if Hanlon gets injured or gets sent off in a, a game who are you going to and they obviously didn't feel like they had enough depth but now if you're going to Cluxton and he's the cavalry and he's happy with that role then I think that's um, relentlessly positive as opposed to this like oh it's desperation anyway we've, we've, we'll have that conversation again with Tommy later on in the week um, we, not to labour the point on Dublin but um, Mannion didn't start yesterday uh, obviously Jack McCaffrey still to come back into the team as well and then you have a few others like if Howard is still a first choice I'm not sure he's going to get back into the team this year but um, for f- first 15 20 minutes I thought this isn't great and then they managed to break uh, Derry's resolve and they looked like they were a team kind of reforming kind of uh, reassembling some sense of identity and confidence and notwithstanding really poor shooting for points Dublin looked pretty good and they look like again they're a team who don't have to peak for another month and a half really yeah and that was that was particularly glaring yesterday definitely Jerry. just in terms of you know Kilkenny he didn't start, but he came on very early and had two on his left foot, had two bad wides early. And it kind of, you know, when there's, I, I, don't, I don't think a game has to be high quality for it to be entertaining, but when there's a lot of sloppy play, like sloppy turnovers or, or poor shooting, it does, it kind of sucks the atmosphere out of a game slightly. And that's how it felt for a large part in the first half. And then uh, a guy who, I, the, the word gets overused, but I do think he, he is really underrated is, is John Small. And he comes up and, has a great goal chance blast over. He obviously gets his goal in the second half, but I think he's been. If you go back to 2015 when Dublin bet Kerry, there's not as many of that team left. Well, Cluxton obviously is back now, but even still, there's not as many of that team left as you would think. But John Small came on that day, was man of the match a year later. Uh, you know, he, he's he's ultra consistent. I would say you could point to nearly every other player and say they've had loads. I'm not saying he's the best player by any stretch, but the level he brings every single week, he brings it consistently. And he did it again yesterday, he was man of the match. Um, and he, I think that that moment when he burst forward and creates the goal chance was kind of the first chance you saw. Oh, they've they've actually opened Derry up here. There was there was a chance on there, and then the hit has his chance, and then the goal comes, and then you're thinking, uh, okay, Derry really need to come back into this. And when you see Glass go down and hold his hamstring, yeah, the second you saw that, you're thinking, wow, this is the tide has turned here. One last point to make on Dublin is that uh, this year the level of fitness that they have at the end of the league and the players who are fit. They're much further along than they have been in the last number of years. But there's no significant doubts about a huge number of players to come back or whether or not they're going to be fit. Now, obviously, uh, they will get injuries as the season goes on. But James McCarthy is fully fit. Conor Callaghan is fully fit. 
we haven't had that at the end of the league. John Small is fully fit at that. So maybe Paddy Small isn't around, but I, there's definitely a sense that they're in a much better, stronger position than they have been in previous years. And then you're layering in that if they were to play Kerry again under the same circumstances as last year, they'll have McCaffrey, they'll have Mannion, and they'll have Conor Callahan, which they didn't have. So I think the gap at the, the top is completely, it's it's paper thin if there is a gap at all. Um, what about the, the uh, first division final then? Obviously, in the aftermath of it, uh, Mayo are happy and trying to celebrate, but not too much because they have a massive game next week. They have a huge game, yeah, next week. I thought, uh, for Mayo, there's a lot of cause for optimism. The fact that amidst all the, the push for change and idea of a new style, that it, it has kind of been a, you know, an evolution, not revolution. They didn't throw their baby out with the batwater. So when a team drops off them, gives them up, concedes the kick out and forces them to run the ball, they're not trying to force the ball and kick it in and concede loads of turnovers. That They're willing to go back to what works uh, or what has worked to a certain extent over the last couple of years if they need to. So suddenly then you're looking at it and you think, OK, they can, if they have the opportunity, they're still going to play a kicking game. But on the flip side, they haven't gone totally away from what they've been very, very good at for for a long stretch of the time. The, the moment for that to sum it up for me was their first point from play, remarkably, their first point from play in the second half was in the 70th minute. And it was, you know, Jim O'Connor flying up the field, coming off his shoulders on McLaughlin, coming off his shoulders, Sam Callahan. And you're thinking, wow, this is this is a new Mayo, but it's still the same old Mayo as well. They still have the, the ability to do that. On the on the flip side, though, I do think, uh, I thought Galway set a template for how teams are going to try and beat Mayo this year. And uh, I think that will be particularly frustrating that I, thought, I actually thought they got their structure right, but execution let them down. So as, mo- as well as uh, the encouragement from Mayo, I think there'll be a huge amount of frustration in Galway at the fact that it was 1981 the last time they won a league final and that way it's going to go on now. When you look at when you look at the programme, the match programme before the throw-in, Morris, you're looking at the Mayo full-back line, you're thinking, that's young, that's inexperienced. But, but the likes of Jack Coyne and the likes of Sam Callan, who you mentioned, Really stood up, and Coyne in particular was was brilliant. That that's that must be so so encouraging for Kevin McStay. Yeah, um, I don't know how they keep doing it, Shane. You know, they they produce these incredibly athletic, uh, rampaging forward defenders like Callanan, who's in the same mold as a lot of what we've seen previously with Mayo. And then they also have a, an uncanny ability to find you know one great man marker. If it isn't Chris Barris, they move on and get somebody else. That Oshie Munnan became that for the last couple of years, and now suddenly they've got. Jack Coyne, who just did not give give Finn any space to breathe yesterday. He was on top of him for the entire game. So that's that's really encouraging. I wouldn't pick... I, you know, I know Galway created a huge amount of goal chances. As I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of the damage was happening out further out the field. It was John Maher's goal chances, a classic example. It's a, a guy who's running forward from deep and maybe not necessarily being tracked. Um, the one match we thought actually Mayo had a huge advantage, it turns out didn't pan out, which was in midfield. And Galway probably got on top there. But uh, in terms of defensively, Mayo are very strong there. What's new? And Galway, I guess, have the you mentioned the midfield battle, but Killian McDade's not there. But when you look at the Galway panel, and it's certainly compared to three or four years ago, there's a lot more strength and depth. Like the players coming off the bench all of a sudden are making a real difference. Now, yesterday they struggled, but but overall, you would think there are shoots of positivity for Joyce as well. Yeah, and uh, it's a very unfair comparison because Galway have a huge amount more players, and you know three of their clubs were in junior, senior, intermediate uh, All-Ireland semi-finals this year but I was looking at Derry and saying you know you pulled their star midfielder and star defender out of the team and then you flip it and you look at Galway and they're without McDade and I know Silker Malloy aren't going to be back but mm. it's very similar the fact and Galway have 
just bit developed a lovely bit of depth this year. Kind of under the radar, I would have said. John Maher, for example, I think that's just a remarkable story. And uh, amidst all the talk about Ian Burke and Peter Cook being recalled, maybe it didn't get the attention it deserves. But like this is a guy, lads, in 2020, Mayo destroyed Galway in the in the league. I don't know if you remember that in Tume during COVID. And John Maher made his debut that day, was taken off at half time. And I'd say there's a lot of people, if you talked to him around Galway, who thought we would, we would never see him again. And he doesn't get called into the Galway squad for 2021 or 2022. But has a brilliant year with his club, John O'Mahony took over Sotel Nakhtara and he logged a, a brilliant year. Told John O'Mahony, uh, by all accounts, at the very start of the year that he was hoping to log a great campaign and then get back in with Galway. Did it. He still weren't sure if we were going to see much of him. He was an unused sub against Mayo with the first game of the league this year. Uh, came on against Donegal, was really good, was excellent against Tyrone. And now kicked two points against Kerry last week and was probably the best midfielder in Crow Park in the Division 1 final yesterday. Um, so that, that rise is remarkable. I don't know how they managed to accelerate the growth that they did, but he's a huge fine for him because if you go back to the Ireland final last year, I thought Conroy kind of ran out of legs and he didn't really seem to have a, a replacement field option now. And now that's just one of, of many positions they suddenly have depth in. It's, uh, it's come to a boil nicely. Like It's unfortunate that we have the provincials to uh, waste our time for the next <laughs> yeah. five or six weeks. It, yeah, it is. I, I think there still is an element of intrigue. I have to say, like just... You will still get away. the Mayo Ross Common game will still keep you entertained. Armagh, even if they do get over Antrim, you're suddenly looking ahead to watching Cavan at the weekend, and that could be a, a very tantalising game. And the great thing about those games, at least I think anyway, Jar, is I think all those teams are going gung ho to to win a provincial title. I don't I don't think there will be any shadow boxing there. So you're looking at Leinster and Munster, and it's probably hard to get too excited about a lot of what we're going to see there. But there still is. It still is enough to kind of get your fix if you need it. Oh yeah, we well, we do need our fix. Uh, I'm being mildly facetious about the there being like obviously that Roscommon game now. Roscommon are delighted, I'd say, that Mayo came through that and that there will be just that little bit of oh we we've done something and um, they'll be absolutely ready to puncture it uh, next week. But to, to the point about Galway, right? Like um, I I do think Porrick Joyce deserves a lot of credit for his ability to change and learn and the you know he, he's a different character now from the one who came in and announced boldly that oh, I'm here to win in All-Ireland and we're going to do it the old school traditional Galway way he's a much more uh, nuanced and polished and uh, humble and therefore better manager than um, than he was when he arrived I think it's fair to say I agree with you yeah and yes there was a perfect example of that um, you, you know I, I don't think if you had said that Galway were going to Concede, kick outs, drop off. It was just classic, you know, yesterday, wasn't it? You know, once they get to the 45, they kind of really hit hard and honest. And if it wasn't for some um, maybe questionable breeze, like they limited Mayo to four points in play yesterday. Um, I think they had more turnovers than Mayo did. It just, the other end, those kind of chances, but really not them. There was five, if you include Johnny Heaney's, which you probably should, there's five goal chances of the four saves. Two were brilliant, I thought. Um, on top of that then you've got like is it three or two missed 45s and one missed three from Walsh Comer misses the mark and that's the Hawkeye one as well um, that clips the post so from that perspective I, I have to I think Joyce as the, so there was there's, maybe there's three parts to this if you want Jared. there's the initial kind of all the optimism then suddenly their style gets um, slightly exposed he goes back to the drawing board post 2021 brings in Keane O'Neill and they build a new Style. And then I actually think there has been a, a further step taken because post and all Ireland final, there's a lot of pitfalls after the, the rise comes the fall. You know, that there's things that a lot of things that could have gone wrong 
the, you have the Shane Walsh saga around the transfer. Um, Damien Comer was on a year break. He take, goes travelling for a bit. There wasn't necessarily sure when he was going to come back. Um, there's all this, I mean, constant. I, I feel like I bring this up every time I talk to you, Jerry, but the constant kind of toxic narrative around a goalkeeper like uh, Conor Gleeson, I don't think that's... I don't, this weekend for me was a testament to all goalkeepers across. As good as Reap was, Gleeson made an excellent save uh, in the second half there as well. And that was uh, I already mentioned Hanlon in the Division 2 game. Um, you've got Sean McNally made some great saves for Fermanagh. Mark Jackson kicking freeze, which was absolutely outrageous. Right, Ray, uh, Galligan doing the same. So it was uh, a great weekend for goalkeepers. But just to go back to, to the point, there was a lot of potential things that could have gone wrong there for Galway. And instead, they, nip, they stuck with their number one. They developed a nice bit of depth, maybe evolved their game ever so slightly to get better at striking that balance. Um, so I, I don't think, we're not sitting here saying that it was a disaster for Galway yesterday. The only thing is that it's three within 12 months now it's three finals lost at some point you kind of finals are there for winning as they say and they kind of need to, to get over the line in those games yeah you were tweeting yesterday Morris as well about Tommy Conroy and I think <laughs> you know I was in the stadium myself and it is one of those things where every time he gets the ball you do expect something to happen and, and it, it's just lovely to see a footballer every time he gets the ball take the defender on and it's just beautiful to watch he's an exciting talent for Mayo this year as well oh Shane you are preaching to the choir <laughs> I, I have to say like I totally I completely understand why if you're coaching an inside forward now you'd be telling him to he needs to strike a balance between laying it off and coming on the loop and you can't always drop the shoulder and take a guy on but it is just so exciting that there still is a guy who's willing to do that who his his first instinct when he gets the ball in his hands is I'm going to drop the right shoulder and I'm going to take you on and if that doesn't work I'll drop the left and I'll take you on that side um, and it's it just you mentioned being in the ground yesterday I, I genuinely did think it was electrifying any time you get on the ball that you knew okay, this is what he's going to do Whether and it could end up a multitude of ways I thought the free he got at the end was, was very soft I thought he was lucky there but just the fact that you have a guy who there still is space for a guy to put the head down and take a guy on how long have we been saying for the last couple of years we'd like to see Conor Callahan do a bit more of that um, the fact that we have a guy who that's his first port of call always is to, to go and have a go I think is, is a good thing and uh, I wouldn't be necessarily discouraging him from doing it Mars, we've got to leave it there. Good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Mars Brosnan there with uh, his thoughts on the weekend's league fixtures. Uh, obviously, we can stick a pin in that now and we move on immediately to uh, the provincial championships. There will be a power rankings this week. If you have any thoughts, you can get in touch with us. You can leave a comment uh, on youtube.com forward slash off the ball or, of course, you can just hit Tommy up directly. But there will be a power rankings this week. 13 minutes past nine this morning. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. The... Uh, OTV Podcast Network some of the highlights for you uh, Kenny Cunningham's goodness post-match after the Newcastle victory against Manchester United yesterday the Sunday paper review and our GA reaction from the weekend as well make sure you follow off the ball across our social channels and subscribe to the OTV Podcast Network after the break we've got Keen Tracy on the Champions Cup You're listening to OTB AM Right, 14 minutes past 9 this morning we're turning back to rugby and to the uh, Heineken Champions Cup um, Keen Tracy is with us of the Irish Independent Keen, let's start with Munster 50 points away from home and not really a glove landed in the second half where are Munster at the moment? Yeah, it's a good question Ger. Um it's a hard one to get your head around really I mean, when you look at their, their last three games I mean, at such a crucial point of the season they've gone to pot really um, 130 points 18 tries 
And like 80 of those points the last two games were against teams like the Scarlets in Glasgow, who aren't even in the knockout stages of the Champions Cup. So um, I would say, you know, their attack has definitely improved. We saw that again on Saturday, despite the, the heavy defeat, they still managed to score five tries. They scored a couple of really nice tries, albeit I think the two late consolation tries put a bit of gloss in the scoreline that probably didn't reflect really how dominant the Sharks were. So um I think a lot of the problems of old that we saw in the early part of the season where you could almost kind of excuse it because it was a new coaching team coming in, new ideas, players looking to adapt. Um, whereas, and to be fair, they did they did secure th- those kind of ills. So what I'm talking about is uh, their work around the breakdown, which was a real, real Achilles heel for them in, in at the start of the season. And that came back to haunt them once again. And like at this stage of the season, I, I I don't think it's I don't think there's any excuses for that. They they just seemed like Craig Casey was exposed so often, and I think so so much of that was down to the pack leaving him exposed. They didn't look like they knew how many numbers to commit to the breakdown. The the sharks counteracted them off the ball. So I mean, Munster's pack has probably been an issue. Well, it has been an issue for a while, and certainly their front row has been an issue. And they're the same old problems, really. And even if you have a new coaching staff coming in, when you don't have the personnel to, I would say, compete with the likes of the, the big South African teams, your Leinsters of this world, it's going to come back to, to bite you. And that's what happened again. So um, defensively, really, really poor. Their set piece wasn't great. Like their scrum was demolished, uh, breakdown obliterated. Um, and yeah, so they are con- there are concerning signs, I think. You know, they've got to go back down to South Africa now again in two weeks for two games against the Stormers and to play the Sharks again to not only save their season this year in terms of their URC playoff hopes, but also to, to save next season. Because if Munster don't qualify for the Champions Cup next season, like it's it's pretty unthinkable really for problems of that size, isn't it? Well, it's going to have a knock-on impact on season ticket sales and big games and your ability to recruit and just, mm-hmm. you know, we, we know we know the difficulties and the pitfalls. So all of a sudden... All the eggs are in the URC basket and there's just no sign of a performance coming. Yeah, the, like, I, I don't know. Like I, I was kind of putting last weekend, or the week before last weekend against Glasgow down to just a bit of a blip, a kind of a post-Six Nations hangover. But it's not like a Leinster where you're welcoming back a load of Ireland stars. Okay, Ty Byrne is out injured. Conor Murray came back, but he seems to be second choice at Munster now behind Craig Casey. And Peter O'Mahony then is the only one you're, you're having coming back. So um, you can't be relying on like these kind of guys to, you know, to lift the standards. Like we see it in time and time again. You look at Leinster a couple of weeks ago, the likes of, you know, uh, Reese Ruddock or Luke McGrath maintaining the standards while other guys are away. And that just isn't happening in Munster at the moment. So look, the conditions I think were, were a factor as well. I think it got up to about 29 degrees, I think, at one point in Durban on Saturday. Uh, the humidity was off the charts as well. But, I mean, I don't think these are really excuses that Munster were looked at. And, and to be fair, they didn't. Like Peter O'Mahony was speaking afterwards, he didn't look to use it as an excuse. But, you know, Munster have spoken so often this season about how their the speed of their training has gone through the roof. And I've no doubt that it has, particularly compared to what they would have been used to under the previous regime. But their fitness let them down, I thought, at the weekend, allowing for the, the difficult conditions. I mean, when they came out for the second half, and like, it's very important to remember, there was only three points in the in the game at halftime. Uh, was it 17-14? I think it was off the top of my head. Um, so like only three points and then to totally collapse um, 
I don't know, was it a mental thing? But to me, it looked like a, a fitness issue because they came out for a second half and they looked absolutely gassed. Whereas I think the Sharks knew that they were going to have them once once they came to the crunch. And as soon as the Sharks cranked up the, the heat, pardon the pun, in terms of the power that they were bringing, Munster had absolutely no answer to it. And I wouldn't mind, but last week in the, the, the press conference build up to the game, Graham Roundtree was speaking about, you know, how it was so important that Munster didn't give uh, the Sharks easy access into the game because they didn't want to be defending malls. Like they knew how strong the Sharks mall was. And yet after half time, uh, Bongi Ngamangi, sorry, that's a bad pronunciation. The, the Springboks hooker scored two mall tries within the space of about five minutes. And that was the, the game done and dusted. So from having gone from being three points down all of a sudden the, the game was dead and buried and it got away from them. And like I said, too late consolation try shouldn't detract from how far off Munster were from the Sharks. As you say, Ken, that the, the weather factors obviously had to play some sort of an impact. It was interesting to listen to Peter O'Mahony speaking afterwards where he's talking about the breakdown being a, a serious issue yesterday. You know, disruptive um, and, and, and they just weren't clinical. So is that, is, that a, is that an ongoing problem? Is that a deep-rooted issue or is that something that can be fixed quite quickly? I think it can be fixed. Like I said, it was a problem in the early part of the season and they did seem to to fix it. But like to me, it just looked like, and it kind of made this point, that they just looked, the players looked confused about how many players they were supposed, how many men they were supposed to be committing to each rook. And what happened then was they had no, they'd slow ball to play off. And then when they did eventually have the ball, Craig Casey was being, was being snagged by, by Sharks players who were absolutely flooding the breakdown. So it was a point that Graham Roundtree made afterwards. It was just that the Sharks were, reloading and reloading really quickly and Munster just couldn't deal with that so I think when they were doing their analysis of this Shark team they would have known exactly what was coming but there's a serious power deficit in that Munster pack and you know it's, it's harsh enough to say it but until they address that that problem and I think particularly in the front row Munster are going nowhere fast and as harsh as that sounds I think that like that's just the reality of the situation and I think any Munster any you know monster supporter who's being honest would reflect that as well. They're nowhere near being a Heineken Champions Cup winning team this season. That's fair enough. But it, to go into a last sixteen clash and knockout clash, like it's just monster aren't used to being blown out blown out of the water like this. So you look at their recruitment over the last couple of years, and I know I've spoken to you guys about it before. Like they brought in you know someone like Malachi Fekitoa this season, whereas the budget could have been spent on trying to get a, a front row in. So. Um, they're going to have to look at that over the over the the off season, you know, post World Cup to try and get a big. I think a pretty, like a hooker. I think a big hooker. I know they were linked with Malcolm Marks in the past. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, you need to have an enormous checkbook um, to attract him. And as Jerry, you made the point that if there's no Champions Cup rugby next season, then it's going to be very difficult to attract um, these big names. But that's ultimately what Munster need. I think they do have a few exciting players coming through the academy. If you look at the 20s, guys like Ruin Quinn and Brian Gleeson, but they're back rows and Munster are already pretty stocked in the back rows. The front row that really need reinforcements if Munster are going to take the, the next step. But we've been we've been saying this for I don't know how many years. So um, it needs, I think, that the board behind the scenes and whoever's making the decisions in terms of the recruitment to come together and realise that until they address this issue, Munster are... Are stalling, I think. Is there any concerns from a wider Irish rugby perspective that the power deficits when the big South African sides are coming at us is still so pronounced? Bear in mind, even Estebeth was uh, clutching a bag of ice on the sidelines and didn't even play the full game and they didn't even bat an eyelid. It was like irrelevant because the, the next man up is just as strong if 
if not even stronger. Like, is there a concern? I mean, maybe maybe Leinster might be able to allay those concerns, but we will obviously face South African opposition in the World Cup that they're just bigger men than us. No, I, I think that argument has been kind of put to bed a little bit for, from an Irish context. I certainly think Leinster have questions to answer. I know we'll get on and talk about them, but like Leinster have been beaten by Lara Shell for the last couple of seasons and they, they still have question marks to answer as, as well as they're playing and blowing everyone else out of the water. But in terms of an Irish context, like Ireland beat South Africa last November. They beat Australia. They went down to New Zealand and won a tour. Uh, they beat France this year. So like they've, I think they've kind of answered those questions. I think South Africa, the World Cup, will be a different proposition. But like this time last year, we were probably having real, real concerns about where Ireland were. They'd lost France. The tour to New Zealand looked really daunting. And all of a sudden, it looks much more positive. So I think we're seeing that in in terms of, like you look at the Leinster pack that played at the weekend, pretty much an Irish starting pack and what they did to Ulster um, by squeezing them to death, really, like is I think Ireland are capable of doing that against most teams. Obviously, like against South Africa, that's going to be more, much more difficult. But if you look at the game plan that that Ireland are playing under Andy Farrell and how quick the tempo they're playing at, um, I would have like less concerns than I would have had this at this stage last year. Albeit South Africa in the World Cup are going to be really, really difficult. Okay, uh, let's talk about Ulster. We can we can talk about Leinster again. Um, what what's the truth about where Ulster are at the moment as well? Because uh, there was some shots fired, but nowhere near enough. And there was never, it looked like a real sense of belief from Ulster that they were going to be able to turn Leinster over. Yeah, I think the, the scoreline, you know, is a reflection, I think, of the, I would say, a considerable gap, if not a large gap between the two teams. I think the game itself went exactly as I was expecting. You know, I kind of just made the point there in terms of the Leinster pack doing the number on Ulster. And if you look at that Ulster pack, and it's probably similar to Munster in many ways, I just don't think that pack is going to strike fear into any of the top teams in in Europe, really, including the South African team. So I think when I when you woke up on Saturday morning and saw how bad the weather was, there was a lot of people kind of saying, oh, this could be a bit of a leveller. But I actually thought the complete opposite. I thought it played right into Leinster's hands because we all know that Leinster on a dry, fast track like Ireland can play unbelievably exciting rugby, but they can also do the nitty gritty as well. And their pack absolutely destroys Ulster. Um, really, really impressive. So, yeah, Ulster, I think Ulster have stagnated a bit, if I'm being honest. I think they need some some fresh ideas in there. Their attack is nowhere near as cutting edge as what it was. Like you think back to last season, Jerwin, you know, they were rightfully coming in for lots of praise, the likes of Mike Lowry, Balakoon, James Hume. And that was being reflected in the Irish squad as well. And suddenly those guys are nowhere near an Ireland squad now. And that's reflective, I think, in probably the restrictive game plan that they're, that they're playing. I think 10 is a major issue for them. Now, to be fair, to give Billy Byrne some credit, it doesn't really matter kind of who plays 10 if your pack is being destroyed as it was last weekend. But I just think they lack direction from 10. Like, you know, you, you can see what Billy Burns is, is capable of with that lovely crossfield kick for James Hume. But moments like that just are few and far between, particularly in these big games. So I don't know if they maybe need, you know, they lost a couple of key coaches over the last couple of years. And I think we've seen how important they've been. There's been lots of focus on the defence in terms of how important Jared Payne was. He went off to Claremont and Johnny Bell came in. But not maybe not a lot was said about Dwayne Peel leaving as well. And he had a massive say, obviously, over the attack. And Dan Soper has taken over there. And I don't know, the attack just to me has kind of stalled a little bit. And I think they, they could do it. Like, I don't know if it's a new coach to come in. Just a, I think a different, fresh uh, pair of eyes. Um, and certainly they could do, you know, they're bringing in a couple of new players next season. But 
you look at the pack like Dwayne Vermeulen looks a shadow of him for, of, of his former self I don't think he's getting the go forward ball that he used to and when you come up against a Leinster team who you just play right into their hands it was I think it was a foregone conclusion really despite what the, the scoreline reflected Leinster were much much better and that's just the reality I think of where the the power dynamic lies between Leinster, Ulster and Munster and Connacht if we're being honest that power dynamic, uh, Keen, like and Dan McFarlane almost referenced it afterwards. He, I think that's an eleventh defeat in fourteen games that he's uh, played against Leinster under his tenure. But he said afterwards, "It is what it is, isn't it? I can't change the demographics. They've just got way more rugby players, way more earning potential in terms of the money." Pointing out the fourteen of the of the starting team for Leinster were were Grand Slam winners with Ireland. But is there almost a resignation when I hear comments like that? I almost feel like there's a resignation that it, there's Leinster and then there's a gap. Yeah, I think you've got you've got to show, I think, a little bit more ambition. And I know we, we spoke about the conditions there in Durban. The conditions in Dublin were were rubbish as well. But I think you've got to show a bit more ambition. I think maybe, like Ireland have shown that as well, when you come up against the, the bigger and the stronger teams, you've got to think your way out of trouble. And I don't think Ulster did that. Leinster's game plan was so, so smart. Um, they knew how strong the, the Ulster Mall was, which we saw obviously for the the Rob Herring try. But Leinster just gave them so few opportunities to get that mall going. Uh, they kept the, like any time they were kicking the ball long, they made sure they kept it in play, which obviously ensured that the the ball and play time was quite high then as well because they wanted to tire out the the Ulster pack. And I think for one moment you talk about the the power chain. I think the the moment for me that summed it up was um, just after Rob Herring scored the try on 59 minutes what it brought it back to what was it 23 15 you were kind of going okay maybe Ulster do have a chance here Ross Byrne takes the, the kick the kick off uh, kicks it dead you get a scrum back on the halfway line so an Ulster scrum on halfway and Leinster absolutely pulverise uh, Ulster on their own ball win the penalty Ross Byrne kicks it down Jimmy O'Brien gets held up over the line uh, Leinster come back for a penalty and Andrew Porter scores the try. So we hear the players talking about, you know, how their next moment focus and not to back up a mistake with another mistake. And we saw that in like ruthless fashion from Leinster. So that was a massive psychological win. I was having a watch back of the game last night. You could see the reaction of the players, guys like Ross Maloney, Tyg Furlong and Andrew Porter. And when you're pushing, you know, your kind of your Irish rivals off their own ball in a scrum, it's just massive. And I think it was really deflating. You could almost see the life being sucked out of Ulster and Leinster it got the try that they needed to, to push on and I think like I said the game was was beyond any doubt then at that stage yeah, We're getting a lot of grief for not doing enough on Leinster in the comments but we've actually got the rest of the season to talk about Leinster that's the whole <laughs> point here that for the next few weeks they're literally the only team that we're going to be yeah. talking oh, about sorry for the, the URC uh, look Leinster have always been talking about the fifth star and it has become their uh, guiding North Star for the last period of time it's going to be a devastating season for them if they don't win the European Cup given that they're at home for every match and I yeah, would hope the Aviva will be sold out again on Friday it's good Friday what else are people going to be doing um, and they hopefully the weather's a bit better and they get to play some champagne rugby against Leicester yeah I'd say they'll be doing well Jared, to sell out the Aviva Stadium with that, that much notice and good Friday particularly having sold it out um, this weekend so yeah Le- Leicester Leicester, I watched them on Friday night against Edinburgh and I was not impressed with them at all, just like I wasn't impressed with them when Leinster wiped the floor with them. I was over in Welford Road last season for the quarter final, so I think Leinster could put a big score on Leicester, if I'm being honest. Um, this week, Josh van der Feer is a doubt. That would be a blow, but you've got guys like Scott Penny or Will Connors to come in. Uh, Caelan Doris and Gary Ringrose, it sounds like, are going to be available again, so 
the wheel keeps turning from a Leinster point of view. But like you say, it'd be really disappointing if they did go on and win it. And absolutely it would be now because they could potentially have two finals in Dublin. And that's a massive, massive advantage. Even if you think back to last yeah. season's Champions Cup final, and I know it was in Marseille as opposed to La Rochelle, but being in France, it felt like a home game for Ron Nogar's lads. So they, the, the stars are definitely aligning for Leinster, but I don't think it's a, it's a foregone conclusion in any sense of the way, even though they are playing at home. Like, it'd be really disappointing, but it's been really disappointing for the last few years, Sure, you'd have to say, because Leinster haven't fulfilled their undoubted potential by adding that fifth star. You know, Toulouse beat them to the drive for five, as they're calling it. So, look, they're not shying away from that that's what's driving them, but there's, they still have questions to answer. Like, in a weird sort of quirk, their run to the final looks like it's going to be the exact same as what it was last season if everything, if results go as expected. So you imagine they're going to play Le- Leicester on Friday. Most likely they're going to play Toulouse in the semi-final again at the Aviva, repeat of last year. And then if La Rochelle get, get their way, and they had to come through a real scare against Gloucester on Saturday as well, but you kind of felt like that but that was maybe the, the speed bump along the way. So um, it's interesting that the, the way the cards have fallen that it could potentially be the same as last year and I think if you were to speak to Leo Cullen or any of the Leinster players they would tell you that they would love another crack at La Rochelle in the final because I think they have some demons that need to be banished Good stuff Thanks a million for joining us Keen. Cheers Cheers lads It's uh, Keen Tracy the Irish Independent there and sorry I didn't realise but uh, the top tiers at the moment look like they're going to be shut unless there's a surge of uh, early um, tickets so 27,000 might be the capacity for the home game um, this weekend I don't know I think that maybe a lot of people decide to go and see the Irish Grand Slam winners at home yeah I guess the problem is that it's not another Irish province they're playing so the, the away fans won't help to boost the crowd but yeah were there that many Ulster fans I don't, I prob- didn't. it seemed to be a decent number judging by the TV but it was um, yeah it's, it'll be tough to sell it out I think maybe they'll sell just a little bit more to, to mean that the top tiers can be open but uh, yeah it is short notice isn't it I mean all of a sudden Leicester fans are like well will we go Oh yeah, well they should definitely go. Yeah, uh, why blame the Glazers for Manchester United overspending their budget on Anthony rather than admit that Ten Hag got the signing wrong, says Edward Freeman, who succinctly makes the point that I was making a little bit earlier on. Bobby Dwyer says, as a Spurs fan, not a chance I take Brendan Rodgers. He may not rub the players up the wrong way, but he rubs the fans up the wrong way. One of the most unlikable men in football. I mean, he just isn't. I when, he, when, he's your, when he's your guy, Bobby, he's going to be fine. Uh, Graham Potter will be the perfect manager for Leicester, says Adrian McGrath. I'm not sure that anybody's going to give Graham Potter a, a gig just now they're going to wait until the uh, the end of the season if he is going to get one Liverpool and United on a par both had equally crap soulless performances Liverpool have no chance of top four no steal in midfield McTominay isn't related to a top half footballer says Brian yeah, I mean McTominay was unbelievable for Scotland yeah. against Spain pretty good international break four goals uh, Connacht have won more silverware in the past eight years than Ulster and Munster combined says Darrow O'Toole which is a fair point and it's a sorry indictment of where Ulster and Munster are at the moment. And whatever grief the IRFU get for the uh, situation of the women's game, the people in charge at Ulster and Munster have to take responsibility mm. for what they were doing. Bear in mind, they wanted Johan Van Grand to stay. They wanted Van Grand to stay. They wanted him still to be in charge. Yeah, I, I just I, I didn't like the, the comments from Dan McFarland after the match. I just felt like it was... I understand where he's coming from. Like The, the gap from Leinster to the rest is, is, is huge, but something needs to be done about it. These teams need to... And I don't think it's academy thing. Kian mentioned the academy in Munster and how there's there are good players coming through. But the problem is the Leinster academy is just a conveyor belt. Uh, Ronan Ward says, Gerard, word for the mighty Villa, please, on the march for Europe. I mean, what, do they want conference next season? Do they want Europa League? Do they want Champions League? Do they qualify for the Champions League this season when the opportunity is there? That's what, uh, yeah. That's it's in it. their hands is what you're saying, yeah. yeah. They just decide when just to. win every game. Yeah. It's not that, not that big a, 
you know sounds simple when you put it like that yeah um, stranger things have happened mm. you never right. know you never know uh, Europa Conference League is where they belong OTBAM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shaver your money back Neon Night edition is available now very drab shirt by Shane Standards yeah apologies um, but I've, I've made up for it with my new NASA sticker so there you oh go. it's new is it new yeah it's, I decided to jazz up the laptop hope people like it change things up you know I'm yeah. always always an entrepreneur uh, on tomorrow's show Nella Manua on Premier League managerial madness David Brady reflects on Division 1 glory power rankings which um, Tommy has promised us plus more football Formula 1 and plenty more besides uh, right now some of the best of the Sunday pay-per-view have a marvellous Monday OTB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now